to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what's in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. Hello to those listening, especially in the chat room. I'm not sure what happened technically on Annie's end, but even I um, cannot hear her at this time. But um, let me know, Doc, if you can hear me. I am not certain what's going on. But today we do have a good show ahead of us. We have as guests coming up Dave Barker, who's a former economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and partner in Barker Companies, which owns, manages, and develops apartments and other real estate. Following him, we have Dr. Marion Mast, MD, is a practicing pediatrician and co-founder of Practicing Physicians of America. And then we have <clears throat> author Dan Perkins, who's a TV-slash-radio personality, commentator, founder of Songs and Stories, and host of The Black and White Show. And after him, coming up, we have Keith Gross, who's a Republican of Florida, businessman and candidate for United States Senate from Florida. And then we have, <clears throat> bringing up the rear, Hannah Davis, immigration researcher and expert at heritage.org. Um, once Andy gets back online, um, we'll do a dedication to Police Officer Robert Schisler of Deptford Township Police Department, New Jersey. So we're going to take about two minutes here and try to uh, figure out what's going on. Check one, check two. Check one, check check two. Okay, so you can hear me, Bigfoot. Seems like I'm locked out of the chat room. I wasn't a minute ago, but, you know, you never know what's behind these things. <laughs> um, sometimes uh, I'm likely to um, suspect, you know, like some conspiracy theorists that there are um, entities and organizations that do not want um, 
certain conservative shows to broadcast because this um, just doesn't seem to be um, your normal um, technical issue here. So I will take another two minutes and try to figure out what's going on. Thank you. All right, looks like I'm back in the chat room. Um, Bigfoot and Duck, if you can still hear me, let me know. Text something. All right, hopefully. Curtis? Can you hear me? I got you. I'm finally in. I can't believe this. It kicked me out. I could not get in for the life of me. I had to dial in as a guest. Yeah, I got I got locked out of the chat room quite a few times and had to um, log back in. Oh, my goodness. Uh, thank you very now much, you- Blog Talk Radio. And this is exactly why we need to get off of them. Oh, yeah. And you sound like you got a lot of reverb behind your voice. How's that now? Is that better? Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Holy moly. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. Holy cow. Let's hope nothing else goes wrong on this. (laughs) Well, welcome to Blog Talk Radio and the nightmare that they have caused us. And hopefully we'll be off these SOBs real soon. Anyway, I'm your hostess with the least, most most frustrated. And if I had a firearm in my hands, I'd be blowing it out of my computer to pieces. (laughs) And he's a radio chickadee. Oh, man, we've got ourselves, Curtis, a really jam-up show if we don't have anything else go wrong. Uh, We're going to have Dave Barker. He's a former uh, economist for the Federal Reserve Bank. Uh, He's going to be talking about how the Federal Reserve is now involved with climate change. I mean, just go figure that one out. Um, We're going to have one heck of a show, I'm going to tell you that. Uh, Dr. Marion Mass. Uh, she's a practicing pediatrician, and she's going to be talking to you about the prescription scam and how much money is going to Swiss bank accounts at your cost. Uh, you know, you hear about insulin costing so much. Uh, well, we're going to get into that. And how much CVS Caremark is behind this billion-dollar scam of you. Just every time you go to the pharmacy and you take out your, your money to pay for your, your prescriptions and you're like, oh, my God, it's costing me $300 for this month alone for two prescriptions, this is going to be why you're paying that money and why we've got to take back the reins. Uh, Dan Perkins was supposed to be with us last week. Uh, he had taken a little bit of ill. He was under the weather and missed the show, but he said he will be with us today. Um, he is an author, a TV radio personality, a commentator. He hosts his own show called The Black and White Show. He's also the founder of Songs and Stories for Patriots. Uh, also, we're going to have Keith Gross. He's running for Senate out of the state of Florida. He's going against Rick Scott. And then we're going to have from the Heritage Foundation our friend Hannah Davis. So we got ourselves a really great show going on, Curtis. 
I'm sorry we had such a bad beginning, Ill. <laughs> we'll have to do a little dubbing in oh, yeah. a little cutting of the video. Because uh, anyone watching is going, oh, these people are really nuts. I really, really want to watch this show. She can't even handle yeah. signing into her own show. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, I tried to explain that perhaps it was um, <laughs> some some people behind the scene, some puppet <laughs> masters trying to disrupt our, our show. So uh, yeah, I, I don't know who not- heard that. I honestly would not put it past, honestly. I really wouldn't, quite honestly. Um, there's been a lot of strange things going on with our connections, my web pages and stuff. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I'm sure, I'm sure we are on the radar somewhere along the way, and we're being punished. But we got to oh, yeah. move forward. Um, those that listen to the show know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's show is going to go out to police officer Robert Schistler of the Deptford Town Police Department in New Jersey. His end of watch was Sunday, May 7th of this year. And this is from the Officer Dan Memorial page. And it reads, Police Officer Bobby Schistler succumbed to complications of a gunshot wound sustained on March 10th of 2023, while struggling with suspected suspect following a foot pursuit. He conducted a subject stop on a man on Delcia Drive. The man fled on foot during the encounter, and Officer Fischler chased him to Domain Avenue, where a struggle ensued between the two. The man, man produced a handgun and shot Officer Schistler in the leg. Despite being wounded, he returned fire and killed the subject. Officer Schistler was taken to the University of Pennsylvania Hospital, where he underwent multiple surgeries. He succumbed to complications of the gunshot wound on May 7th without having ever been released from the hospital. He had served with the Deptford Police Department for four years. His father and brother are also serving in law enforcement. And this is from David Proper of the New York Post. And he writes, A New Jersey police officer has died two months after he was shot during a struggle with a suspect. He died on Sunday. Deptford cop Robert Schistler paid the ultimate sacrifice in the line of duty when he succumbed to his injuries on Sunday, May 7th, police chief Joseph Smith said in a press release. The 27-year officer was rushed to the hospital on March 10th after he and suspect Mitchell Negron exchanged gunfire, the New Jersey Attorney General's office posted. Schistler fatally shot Negron, who was pronounced dead at the scene. Negron ran from Schistler after the officer tried to stop the 24-year-old while he was walking. The Attorney General's office said in a March release, a 38 Special Revolver belonging to Negron was recovered at the scene. Our deepest sympathies are with the Schistler family during the difficult time of bereavement, Smith said. Though nothing can take away the pain of his passing, Bobby's incredible strength and bravery will be an unforgettable example of being Deptford's strong. He was the best of all of us. Schistler was born and raised in the town and lived there before his tragic death. His prolonged hospital stay was at Cooper University Hospital in Camden. 
Officer Schistler will always be remembered for his dedication and commitment to the residents of this great community, Smith said. We are extremely grateful and thankful for his service. He will be sorely missed but never forgotten. Posted by the New Jersey State PBA. Following the shooting, the police department continued to ask residents to pay for Schistler as he fought to recover. Local students wrote get well letters to the cops, and various community events were held to raise funds for the officer's hospital bills. The department also encouraged residents to donate blood and to take a first aid course on behalf of Schistler. A social media campaign dubbed hashtag Schistler Strong showed support for the police officer. His grandmother said in an April 24 Facebook post that Schistler had undergone numerous surgeries and lost part of his right leg. Thank you so very much for your prayers and love, Ethel Hawkins wrote, noting Schistler's father and brother were also police officers. We preach, appreciate each and every prayer for him and for our family. His patrol car was parked outside of town municipal building that night with flowers and a thin blue line flag draped over the windshield. Family and friends and fellow members of law enforcement gathered to say a final farewell for a fallen New Jersey police officer. The funeral for Deptford Police Officer Robert Bobby Schistler was held at Rowan University Flager Concert Hall in Glassboro. He passed away on May 7th, a little over two months after being shot in the line of duty. He passed the mark. His passing marked the first line of duty death for the department. Members of his squad said he was not only a squad mate, but he was their hero, brother, and friend. You are the best of us all. People don't know you. Wonder how you fought so hard for so long. How you defy the odds over and over again when a normal man would have given up. We are not surprised in the least. You are, and always have been, the strongest person we know. His sister Ashley said Schistler had a tattoo on his wrist reading, For those I love, I will sacrifice. Bobby gave everyone and everything his all. He was brave, devoted, fearless, and so selfless he said. A line of law enforcement officers formed as far as the eye could see, each waiting to pay their respects. Us at law enforcement, a brotherhood and a sisterhood come together. It brings us closer, said Chief David Harkins of the Glasgow Township Police Department. Members of the public lined up too. Many knew Bobby, and to them he was always Bobby. I'm not going just to remember Bobby as the officer that passed away in the line of duty at Deptford. He's also Bobby that I've known since we were teenagers, said John Masalinic of Deptford. Officer Schistler, your end of tour. Stand down. We have it from here. Today's show is dedicated to Officer Schistler. It's also dedicated to the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate to them, to all the brave men and women that serve in our armed forces, from the birth of this nation through today and into our hopeful future. To them, we dedicate this song by Tiffany, Soul of the Nation, 
May God bless each and every one.
listening to Southern Trends on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio, Substack, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Now Simplecast, TuneIn Podcast, and half a dozen other places I don't even know anymore. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and join us everywhere. And yes, we're starting to post them up on... Uh, Instagram, and I'm trying to start getting up on Rumble also, uh, trying to remember to p- put them up on Substack. If you go to Substack, it's at Southern Sense, no dots, no dashes, just the at symbol, at Southern Sense. Uh, join us there at Substack also. Um, your hostess with the least most is the Radio Tickety Annie, along with my co-host, who is bringing our guest in right now onto the line, Curtis C.S. Bennett, and want to give a warm welcome to a the latest <laughs> sacrificial lamb to be brought onto the air, David Barker, former economist for the Federal Reserve, businessman, man about town, and he's going to tell us what the heck the Fed is up to now. Welcome aboard, David. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is our pleasure. And I have to apologize. We had to start off to the show that was so messed up. <laughs> so I have to go back and do a little editing. But you're fine. Uh, you know, I do swear that there's someone out there on the left that listens to the show, and every now and then they do something just to mess with us. <laughs> <So> <laughs> especially if I do a broadcast about COVID or China. Anytime I do those broadcasts, it, it it's guaranteed something's going to go wrong. <laughs> but um, you've been talking about the Fed and climate change. And here we are. The Federal Reserve is supposed to be helping us handle our money, help us keep the economy on track. Uh, but they're seeming to be going off track rather strangely. What the heck does the Fed have to do with climate change and our economy? Well, Right. You would think that they would be concentrating on making sure banks don't fail and bringing inflation under control. But uh, they also have a lot. Now, they employ uh, something like 400 economists, and they've got a large group of them working on climate change. Uh, so they are you know, going to conferences, producing papers and doing academic level research on the effects of climate change. Um, and so you know, I thought at first that seemed odd. And then I was interested in, well, so what's their research like? Uh, is it any good? And so, so I, I have a PhD in economics. I used to be an economist at the Federal Reserve. Uh, so uh, I, I dug into this and I found that the quality of the research, even though some of it had been published in peer-reviewed academic journals, was terrible. It was really poor. The statistical assumptions were wrong. The use of data was wrong. Uh, it, w- it was all just uh, just nonsense. Well, you know, what, what, what I find strange, and I have a, a dear friend of mine. He formed the group. I don't know if you ever heard of them, the CO2 Coalition, uh, Gregory Wrightstone. He's a geologist, and he started delving into climate change and started debunking it. Matter of fact, he's brought in a lot of major scientists and other experts into his organization and that's when i started to see the truth behind the climate change now growing up in the uh, 1900s we had those things they called earth shoes and back then yeah. the whole world <laughs> is now uh, trust me i begged my mom to buy them for me and finally she got me a pair and they're the most uncomfortable things you ever <laughs> want to walk <in. laughs> but um 
you know, you heard about it back then, and you said, all right, fine, this is just to scare us. And we're kids. We understood they were just trying to scare us and get us involved in these new environmental issues that were coming to fruit. And now it's expanded. They got their foot in the door, and they said, well, we can get away with it so far. Now it's whole hog. And a lot of the stuff that they're coming up with just makes absolutely no sense. And what I find strange, and it's strange the timing of the Federal Reserve getting involved in this, is that as we're in the lockdown with COVID and our supply system is disrupted and our economy is hyperventilating, loaf of bread goes from 99 cents to $3.86. No, that's, that's, that's not, you know, not planned, really. Um, we're seeing now they're delving into the climate change while they're playing around with our money. And it is our money. I mean, how the inflation goes up, how the interest rate goes up, how the market reacts. It is our money that's out there that's being affected. Yes, that's, no, that's right. And you're absolutely right about scaring people. And the, the angle that the Federal Reserve has taken is that climate change will, you know, will, will damage the economy. Uh, they were trying to show that, well, all right, so – the, the, the best work that's been done on the economic effects of climate change, so even if the climate change stuff is true, even if uh, the earth is going to warm over the next 80 years, the best work on this shows that the effects on the economy would be relatively minor. And this is the work that was done by a Nobel Prize winning economist who won the Nobel Prize for his work on climate that, uh, you know, by the end of this century, GDP would be, you know, three or four percent lower than it would otherwise be. Well, and that's not very much because with normal economic growth, we're all going to be five times richer at the end of the century than we are now. So what the Federal Reserve was trying to do was to show, no, climate change is going to affect the rate of growth. So we'll be much poorer at the end of the century than we would otherwise be. And that's the research that was just plain wrong. They used all kinds of terrible assumptions, all kinds of statistical techniques that didn't make sense, uh, and the results fall apart when you, uh, uh, when you try and clean that up. They do. They fall apart rather badly. And I, I love it where they say, well, CO2 in the air is going to destroy the economy and everything, yet... The higher the CO2 level is in the air, the more plant growth we get, the more plant growth we get, the more crops we get, the more crops we get, the more people we feed. The more people we feed, the wealthier the economy becomes, the wealthier and healthier the, the rest of the world, the population becomes. So it's got the exact opposite effect than what they plan. Yeah, and, and they thought that they could show that if the temperature was a few degrees warmer in a state or in a country around the world, that economic growth would be lower. And that just isn't true. And, and it goes against common sense. If you think about you know, how much economic growth there's been in Florida versus Michigan over the last uh, 50 years, well, Florida's a lot warmer and it's grown a lot faster. Uh, you know, high, slightly higher temperatures just doesn't seem to have any effect on the rate of economic growth. Well, what I love is that when you look back historically, what our planet was doing uh, the geology of it, uh, the temperatures, when they drill down into the core to bring them up to see what was growing, what plants are down there, what fossils are down there. Um, the world was definitely a lot warmer when Christ walked on it. And we didn't have a major catastrophe, did we? Right, 
Right. Oh, no, right. There have been all kinds of fluctuations in uh, climate uh, uh, over time. Uh, you know, the, the, the climate does change uh, uh, for all kinds of uh, reasons. So, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Now, I, I find that all fascinating. You know, my focus has been on the economics of it. But, uh, yeah, it's all um, – I, I think it is all worth questioning. And it's always good to question things, even if, uh, you know, all the credentialed people uh, seem to uh, think that uh, something is true. Well, it's funny because you have a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I subscribed to it for the free edition to download articles for the show. And for some reason last night, it would not let me download your article. So I'm going off the top of my head. And the article was called The Fed's Climate Studies Are Full of Hot Air that you wrote about this, where you actually debunk all the studies and you explain why. Now, you talk about in the article where I got uh, AJ sent me some of the parts of it um, about money supply exploding. But what I don't hear anyone talking about, we spoke about this back in 2009 and 2010 when we formed the Tea Parties, quantitative easing. I mean, Richard Nixon took us off the gold standard. Thank you very much, Tricky Dicky. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but we don't have our currency backed by anything, so this is fiat currency. There's nothing to it. It's, it's just paper. And yet our, the money quantity that is out in the market is phenomenal. Why isn't anyone talking about that and its effect on the economy and inflation and interest rates? Well, well the, uh, yes, you're right. If you look at the uh, money supply numbers, and they're easy to find, uh, the Federal Reserve has a data system uh, that's called FRED, F-R-E-D. And if you simply Google uh, Federal Reserve Fred, you'll have access to all kinds of data that the Federal Reserve uses. And one of the things you can pull up is the money supply. Uh, and, and those are, you know, M, uh, M1, M2, M3. Those are different measures of the money supply, depending on whether you're counting, you know, just currency or uh, bank deposits or money market funds, that sort of thing. But they all measure the money supply, and you can look and see how it's grown. And during COVID, it just, as you said, it just exploded. We had uh, growth in the money supply like we've never seen before. And uh, the Federal Reserve, though, while that was happening, they kept predicting that inflation was going to stay at 2%. And at the same time, when you surveyed consumers, what do you see happening in your lives, the prices you're paying? They were all saying, uh, we're seeing inflation, and uh, we expect more inflation. So ordinary people got it right when the Fed was getting it wrong. And sure enough, inflation took off and, uh, you know, because the money supply had exploded. Um, and it, it is a common sense, a basic economics, but uh, a lot of uh, our policymakers and academic uh, economists seem to have lost sight of that. You know, um you talk about examples of climate activism, and the Fed got in on this. Now, they have a pilot project that you talk about in the article. What the heck is this pilot project, and why should we be scared? So the pilot project is for large banks, for now, uh, to uh, study their climate risks and report on their climate risks, so-called climate risks. So. Uh, these banks are going to have to devote people and attention and money to thinking about, okay, what if 
the uh, you know sea levels rise uh, you know in different places where they might have loans, or if uh, temperatures change and that affects uh, you know agriculture where they have agricultural loans, uh, they have to dig into all of this uh, and say, okay, what kind of risk would we have? And there are some odd rules that uh, say, well, you know, and what if? Uh, you know, none of the insurance policies paid off and there were fires and things like that. Uh, so they will come up with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, big risks. Uh, but uh, that all assumes that, uh, you know, these things are going to happen, that temperatures are going to rise and all, all of these things are going to happen. Uh, so they will – then I think what, the, uh, what could happen next is that the Federal Reserve will say, well, see, we've got all of these major climate risks, and so banks shouldn't be lending uh, in certain areas. Uh, they shouldn't be lending to fossil fuel companies. They shouldn't be lending here uh, or to, to uh, maybe even to different agricultural areas because they identify those as climate risks, um, and, uh, give, and which will give the Federal Reserve more power over the economy and more political power uh, over the country. Well, there's a question in the chat room. I'll get to it in just a second. Uh, I got some great listeners, so sometimes they come up with some real doozy questions. Uh, but uh, now I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Uh, oh, yeah, I know where I was going. You're talking about uh, now saying you're not going to loan money into certain areas, and it brings to mind a conversation I had with my then-congressman at the time, uh, Mark Sanford, and he and I were texting back and forth, and he was pushing for uh, helping insurance companies uh, with some sort of subsidies for anyone that built along a waterway. And I'm like, wait a minute, a waterway. Uh, so you're, you are here in the low country, which is the coastline. There's a difference between just a coastline and you're talking waterway. That could be the little creek behind my house. It's a waterway. And we went back and forth, back and forth. And he was going, well, I'm looking to help protect people that are in a flood zone. And I'm saying, wait a minute, shouldn't it be buyer beware? Don't you do your research before you plant your butt in that house that you just bought? Uh, I did. I made sure that yeah. my house was not in a flood zone before I purchased it. So why are you going to protect someone from making a bad decision? And I'm looking at it this way. And yet they'll say with climate change, because we have a growth in building around areas that are in flood zones, uh, we have to now do something to protect the stupid idiots that built there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Why? Are, why at my expense? I don't think so. No, it makes. You're right. It makes no sense. But uh, this is how this is how politics works. When a small group of people are affected by something, they can join together and lobby government for subsidies. And basically, they're taking a little bit of money from everyone else. And all of those other people, it's not worth it for them to organize to oppose it because they're all losing a little bit. So a small minority always has an advantage in the political system because they can band together and get a big reward. And everyone else says, oh, it's just a few bucks. Uh, uh, it's not worth it for me to get involved politically to oppose it. And then group after group, follows this strategy, and pretty soon we're subsidizing things right and left and crippling the economy of most people uh, to do that. Well, you just brought up a very, very valid point because we recently had several bank failures because they decided to be um, woke. 
So they went along with these ESG standards, equity, social justice, governance standards that this group out there has said, well, you have to be more awoke, more liberal and progressive in your thinking. Therefore, take your investor's money, your depositor's money, and put it into these woke groups, which nine times out of ten go bankrupt. Uh, We're seeing this now. You do it with climate. Next comes wokeness, and it's going to go downhill from there. And then we have no one watching our money for us. Absolutely right. We, we went through this before. Uh, back in the 1960s, there was a big movement to talk about how corporations, well, their obligations were not only to shareholders, but all these various stakeholders, they said. And so a corporation has to think about its community and uh, the environment and all these things in addition to shareholders. Well, Milton, Milton Friedman, uh, Nobel Prize winning economist at the University of Chicago, uh, who, who I met when I was a student, uh, got my PhD from there, uh, he argued that no, uh, corporations need to answer to their shareholders. They need yes. to maximize profits and that will improve overall economic efficiency for everyone. And he, I think his, he kind of won the day and convinced people that that was the right approach. Well, now we're going through the same thing, and people are forgetting those lessons, and we're moving corporations into uh, you know, chasing inefficient goals again. And uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think probably the same thing will happen. As you said, uh, uh, companies will uh, get woke and go broke, and uh, mm-hmm. investors will learn. Uh, uh, the lesson all over again and hopefully impose some discipline on these companies. Yeah, it's, uh, if I go out there to buy a loaf of bread or I'm not a big beer drinker, occasionally I do grab one, a uh, six-pack, I don't want politics to be involved when I'm, it, it's coming between me and my alcoholic beverage or me and what bathing suit I'm going to buy or me and what linen I put in the bed or what toilet bowl I buy or what light bulb. Oh, thank you very much, government, uh, Uncle Sam, for telling me what light bulb I can buy and what toilet seat I can buy. Uh, you can see I'm on a roll here. But when right. you get politics and government between the consumer and the product, it's not a good match. Oh, I agree. And, you know, the standard of living for people around the world has dramatically improved over the last couple of centuries. And the reason for that is capitalism, is people maximizing profits, people looking for needs uh, and filling them in order to make a profit. And the more government interferes with that or the more uh, activists, social justice activists interfere with that, uh, the worse off people will be. And it will interrupt this progress that we're making uh, towards improved standards of, of living and improved lives for people around the world. Yeah, because now you see even Chick-fil-A now has DEI, diversity, equality, whatever, inclusion. Diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, right. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, that. Now, even Chick-fil-A has gone down that road with whoever is hiring the people to work at Chick-fil-A. Wait a minute. You had a great product, and you stood by your principles. 
and you had people lined up around the block. I mean, every time I went past our local Chick-fil-A, and you see <laughs> they had two lines in the parking lot to go into the drive-in and yes. go around the block. And, so and they why had people standing out there in the line taking those orders to make the uh, line flow more uh, quickly and smoothly. Uh, brilliant customer service. That's right. Yeah. Now, ironic, I, I am not a fast food person. I mean, I ate enough of it putting myself through college where I worked three jobs to put myself through college, no subsidies, no loans. Um, yeah, so I ate a lot you. of fast food. Uh, so I'm not one that's going to line up, but uh, my fiance and I were driving past because I want to go to Chick-fil-A. I said, I'm looking at the line. I'm going, no, it's going to take us an hour to get through that line. Believe it or not, Chick-fil-A did such a good job within Seven minutes, we were up getting our order. Within a few moments later, it came out nice and hot. And actually, it was good. I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. chips like, don't mess with a good thing. Look what happened with Budweiser. How many now are they in the hole? But then right. again, right. are some of these companies that hold, like companies such as Budweiser, doing that deliberately to destroy the American market? Because Budweiser is no right. longer an American company. Are they doing it to deliberately destroy? Look at Fox News. That's another perfect perfect example. Are they doing it to destroy the message? Yes. I mean, companies should stick with what they do best. You know, do it well, concentrate on that, earn a profit, and pay dividends to their shareholders. If their shareholders want to support, uh, you know, this cause or that cause, they are free to contribute that money uh, wherever they want. But if we get companies distracted from their main mission of providing goods and services cheaply and efficiently, we will all suffer from that. Uh, We are. Go ahead, Curtis. David, I was curious. um, We all know that during the last administration, um, gas was much cheaper than it is now. The economy was booming. Why aren't the Republicans out there juxtaposing what was what, what is going on now? I mean, to me, that that is just just you know, pure stupid not to um, run on the successes that we've had in the past when we had Republican leadership. Well, I agree, and Ronald Reagan knew that, and uh, his campaign was based on "Are you better off now than you were four years ago?" Uh, when he ran in 1980. And uh, that was a winning message because people said, well, uh, come to think of it, no, I, was, uh, I am not better off in 1980 than I was in 1976. And uh, he won and uh, had a very successful uh, administration, and people were better off in 1984 and in 1988 than they had been in 1980. So I agree, that is the winning strategy for Republicans this time. Well, I gotta admit, I did not jo- vote for Jimmy Carter. I did vote for Ronald Reagan, even though he lost. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm dating well, myself. Ronald, yeah. Yes, well, Ronald Reagan, I remember, you know, it, it took a while for his message to, to uh, catch on it, because in 1976, he did lose the nomination uh, to Gerald Ford. Uh, but then when he was nominated in 80, he uh, you know, came in and won and made a huge difference. That he did. That he did. Um, one of the things I was looking at as I was doing my research, I found an article uh, dating back a little bit uh, by Lydia, I'm probably going to mispronounce her last name, DePillis. Uh She wrote it in Money, uh, 
on CNN.com, where she was talking about economic forecasts being a blind spot, you know, about climate change and how it affects the economy. And I was reading this thing, and I'm going, there was not an iota bit of research actually placed in her article that you could find as genuine. And she was just repeating all the tropes. Uh, the social cost of carbon, she talks about, the need for a global clean energy. Uh, wait a minute, didn't I just recently see a blurb about Poland going against the EU on banning uh, gasoline and diesel vehicles? Uh, that's not working out too well, is it? Uh, the cost right. of the electric vehicles and the dangers of electric vehicles, Gee, they have a tendency to catch fire when in contact with water like floods. And then she... Yeah. She quotes about the disappearance of polar bears. She's talking about the effects on natural world. Think polar bears, she writes. Well, I, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Lydia, uh, before you even wrote this article, there was a scientific research done where it showed the population of the polar bears is exploding because the weather is warmer and they can get to food easier. The exact opposite is happening. Yes. Well, you're bringing up a very good point, which is how the mainstream media covers uh, climate change and, and many other issues. So, for example, with the Federal Reserve studies that we were talking about earlier, there was a lot of press coverage. The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and uh, uh, CBS and ABC, you know, they, they covered this research and said, oh, look, this Federal Reserve research shows that uh, uh, all these terrible things are going to happen. Then I published my work in an academic peer-reviewed journal. Uh, and uh, showed that all of that research they had reported on was wrong and, 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 and wrong in all kinds of ways, scientifically provable ways. And, I cont and, and nothing, nothing written in the press. I contacted the reporters who had written about the original Federal Reserve studies and said, look, I've proven that this study you wrote about uh, so glowingly is wrong. Don't you want to uh, write something about that? Nothing. Uh, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Uh, no response at all. Well, I'll tell you what. In my fat little hand, I printed – actually, I have to tell you, because it was pretty long, I printed the first two pages and the last two pages. You wrote okay. in the uh, Econ Journal Watch uh, in September of 2022. Uh, it was titled Temperature in the U.S. Economic Growth. Comment on – I'm going to mispronounce this one – Colicito, Hoffman, and yeah. uh, Fan. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Did I yeah. manage to do that Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, you, you wrote a great abstract on this and a great, great research. Um, actually, my mathematics did not go as far as yours have. Uh, but in your concluding remarks, you wrote that uh, the rate of eco economic growth by one-third is a Goldilocks estimate. You want to explain to people yeah. what you <laughs> Yeah, I love that. <laughs> so, so if you are trying to push a social cause and trying to scare people, as you were saying earlier, um, you you have to come up with something that's you know big enough to be scary, but not so big that it sounds ridiculous. And so what I found when I looked into, you know, I dug into the code that they used to, you know, generate their estimates and uh, analyze the data. And there were all kinds of assumptions that they would choose to make or not make. And there were things that they could have chosen that would have made the results look even stronger that they chose not to do. And what I was speculating about was that uh, 
that they chose this Goldilocks estimate that is big enough to be scary, but not so big to be ridiculous, that they were, you know, sort of cherry picking and avoiding going too far uh, with the cherry picking to get the estimates that they thought would have the biggest political impact. Not necessarily, and again, I'm just speculating, but not necessarily the best scientific estimate of what they're supposed to be doing, which is not what academic research is supposed to be about. Yeah, well, you act absolutely just dissected everything brilliantly, um, but unfortunately, people are not going to read it because we now live in a disposable society, and that is the biggest problem we're facing right now, which is why the DEI, the ESG, the climate alarmists are getting away with the crap they're pulling on us because we have 140 characters if it's not in that little succinct 140 characters or even like a little Instagram or TikTok video, it's not going to garner attention, unfortunately. And uh, sometimes I feel like I can talk until I'm blue in the face, uh, but how do we get the word out there that this disposable society can digest and accept? Well, it's very difficult to break through. And I, I was very fortunate that the uh, Wall Street Journal picked up my op-ed piece. And I, I think they were interested because of the Federal Reserve angle. Uh, and some of the people on the Wall Street Journal editorial section, which is different from the Wall Street Journal news uh, section, uh, but the editorial section uh, liked my angle that uh, the Federal Reserve ought to be concentrating on the economy instead of these other things. And so, I, I, you know, it's just a, uh, a fortunate uh, confluence of events that uh, allowed that to be, uh, to be published there. But yes, uh, the mainstream media wants to monopolize information on climate change, and it's very difficult uh, to break through that. It is. It's very difficult. And unfortunately, uh, we've got a government right now in power uh, that would use this as a method in which to control the population and control the, the vote. Uh, control the message that the media is being put out there. And the media, like lapdogs, is just parroting everything they're saying. And that is a scary, scary thought because it will cause us economic ruin unless we pull the brakes in. Yes, it's, it is because the financial system uh, has the potential to uh, give government so much more control. Uh, I think you, you were saying this earlier about uh, people using, uh, the government using the financial system in this way. And we've seen it before, uh, Operation Choke Point several years ago, where uh, the Treasury Department saw certain industries that they didn't like and persuaded the banking system to cut those industries off. And it was only some courageous uh, congresspeople who stood up to that and put a stop to it, but it's uh, a constant uh, battle. Uh, people trying to use the financial system to uh, to control uh, to control people to achieve other political goals or economic goals. Because now, yeah. if you can control how they think, you now control what they purchase. If sure, you control absolutely. how they think. You control how they vote or support a leader and who in turn will control what you purchase and how you live, where you live. And don't even get me into sustainability neighborhoods. <laughs> You're going to see my head explode. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And and there's always money to be made from all of these things. Uh, you know, there uh, people are making money from all of these uh, uh, things that they believe are solutions uh, to climate change, and so someone benefits. 
Yeah, I mean, I had I had had phone calls, emails, letters, and everything nonstop on solar power. I'm sorry, those solar panels contain arsenic and other uh, hazardous materials, and should one of them break, it is hazardous materials you need to dispose of. You can't just toss it in your local garbage can to your local dump. Uh, you want that nice electric vehicle? Watch your uh, power bill go sky high. And yet you don't want petrochemicals, yet you can't produce any part of that vehicle without some petrochemical being a part of it at some point or other. Uh, I'm sorry, you like your little uh, smart device, your cell phone, your Fitbit watch, uh, your cosmetics, your perfumes, your clothing. Name one thing that we come in contact with outside of the air we breathe outside, that God-given air, that does not have something to do with the petrochemical. And yet we want to stop exploration and drilling for oil. Does it make any sense to you, David? No, and the 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 thing that is is troubling is that uh, you know we we hear from the media and from others all of the downsides of the things they don't like uh like uh you know uh, like petroleum and you know fossil fuels but then when there's some technology that they like they have some kind of fondness for uh then none of the downsides are reported at all uh and so people get a very distorted view of uh, the relative dangers of different things. It is a very strange world we are starting to now live in. And thankfully, there's people like you that are the watchdogs out there. Um, where can people find you if they want to get in contact with you? Is there someone they can? Uh, sure. Well, uh, Econ Journal Watch, uh, as you mentioned, is the uh, the journal that I've been publishing in. Again, that's an academic peer-reviewed journal. And uh, I am uh, listed there. Uh, and uh, you can find my uh, Wall Street Journal uh, editorial also by uh, by searching there. Oh, fantastic, fantastic! I just I had in my hand I forgot to mention the uh, agenda for the system climate meeting that the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco had, which was a virtual meeting. I like the way they break for lunch. <laughs> You're on a virtual meeting. Eat at the desk. Here's a chair. Who cares? You know. But you know, none of these names ring any bell uh, to me. But you, I look at some of these. I'm trying to figure out climate change and the adaption of the global supply chain networks. Um, What the heck does climate change have to do with the supply chain? Uh, it's, I thought it was more like Gavin Newsom not letting certain trucks cross over the California border because they didn't meet California standards, and they couldn't get into the ports to get the merchandise off the ships because they didn't fit Gavin Newsom's uh, how he decided. You had to have it in a certain year, had to have it in a certain gas mileage, blah, 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 whatever, giving me a headache here. I don't care. Uh, you got asparagus on that ship coming in from South America, and I need it on my kitchen table. And get those trucks in. But no, yeah. that's the disruption to the supply chain. We had the same thing with the Canadian border with COVID outbreak. I, yeah. That's what disrupts the, our, our transportation uh, chain, not climate change. Yes, I have. That's that's a paper I have not dug into yet. But my guess is that climate change would be a minor factor in uh the in any of the uh, supply chain disruptions that we've experienced recently 
And I was looking at another one that uh, climate change and the geography of the U.S. economic activity. Uh, wait a minute. Uh, we could have better geography if government stopped paying farmers to not produce and if we allowed them to rotate the crops naturally instead of mandating they, could, they have to plant soy or corn. A crop, crop rotation does help the planet and make it stay healthy and produce more food, uh, not what government tells it to plant when to plant. So, again, we need government off the back and out of climate change and DEI, ESG, in order for our economy to flourish. Yes, and that paper that you mentioned is related to the work that I was doing, uh, looking at uh, whether higher or lower temperatures in different parts of the country uh, seem to be correlated with any uh, differences in the rate of economic growth. And when you look at it correctly, uh, when you use the right, uh, when you use statistical assumptions that make sense, uh, there's no there's no effect. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, David, it has been a pleasure. I'm sorry I couldn't get all the stuff printed off that I wanted to talk to you about, but we're going to have to have you come back on and have more fun <laughs> poking our fingers in the eye of this administration. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the uh, conversation. All right, and God bless, and happy Father's Day. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> all right, take care. God bless. All right, all check right, out. Uh, check out uh, David uh, Barker over at the Econ. Okay, let's try this again. Uh, here we go. Uh, it looks like Curtis is trying to bring our next guest in on the line. I, I'm sorry, guys, but uh, for some reason, Blog Talk Radio is giving us a bit of a hard time messing us up badly. Uh, hopefully, we can get around all these technical difficulties, so just please bear with us uh, while Curtis tries to bring our next guest in on the line. And we're going to be talking about a lot of great things. Um, like I said, we've got other great guests coming in. Uh, we have Dan Perkins will be joining us uh, after this. Uh, we also have... Um, Hannah Davis from Heritage coming back on. And we also have candidate for the Senate out of Florida, Keith Gross. So hopefully we have Dr. Mass in, Curtis. Do we have Dr. Mass? Yes. Curtis? All right. Uh, yes. Which one? Because I see two numbers here. Which one do we have? Did we not unmute it? Uh, yeah, there's two of them here. Let's try this other one. Let's hope we get our studio switchboard to work. Uh, and looking for Dr. Mass. Dr. Marion Mass with us? Yes, I can hear you now. I hope you can hear me. Ah, yes. I'm sorry. We have been having technical difficulties. We run through an online platform, and today they're just not behaving with us. I don't think they want the conservative message to get out there, honestly. <laughs> they're telling us to sit down and shut up. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it does feel like that a lot, doesn't it? Like, you know, you're yeah. a second-class citizen and you're, you're – it's kind of like an animal farm, you know, like uh, some animals are more equal than others. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And I actually read 1984 a long, long time ago as well as Animal Farm, and I still have them both on my bookcase. Oh, my goodness. Um, you have been delving into a subject that is near and dear to a lot of people's hearts the cost of pharmaceuticals in today's day and age. And um, I grew up in a time before government interfered 
uh, with the patient-doctor uh, relationship. You would go to your local doctor, and then he was the local guy. He would either you would go to his office, which was probably in his house, or he'd come to you if necessary. Um, and it was just you one on one. And if the visit was thirty five dollars, and you only had five dollars in your pocket, it's like, don't worry, come back next time. You give me a little bit more. It was the local family doctor, the local doctor that kept everyone together. And today, it's a huge meat market. Now throw in the uh, conglomerate that is the pharmaceutical industry, and it's a nightmare. Well, it, it, you know, you could say pharmaceutical industry. I, I would say actually middleman industry because that's where, you know, when we talk about drug pricing, take a look at insulin. I mean, people are they, they're rightfully complaining about the cost of insulin, but 80% of what they're paying is flowing to these shadowy figures, these pharmacy benefit managers. They're middlemen. They don't make drugs. They don't do research. They don't even move the drugs around the country. They're, they're simply like creating the formularies and, you know, they have about, you know, well, I shouldn't say about. They, who knows how many other revenue streams they have that I haven't been able to discover. I feel like I turn over a rock and there's a new one. It's, it's like a whole den of thieves there. Well, there's always a way to get around the system if someone just does their little homework, which it seems that this I'm gonna, uh, conglomerate, whatever you want to call it, is doing. Now, I remember I had a friend of mine. She was a pharmaceutical salesperson, and she would tell us about you know going to a doctor's office. She'd bring them lunch and everything else, and the doctor would get some sort of a kickback every time he prescribed a certain medication. And they were there to sell the medication and get the doctor hooked in on their product. And then government said, no, no, that's not good. And then they passed legislation to prevent that. So that went to the wayside. You still have the salesperson. The doctor's not getting the kickback. The ads that are now in TV must tell you all about the side effects. But now there's a whole new industry that grew up in the void that was caused. And it should make everyone scared. It should make everyone scared because it's very interesting. I mean, you know, you can actually see, you can go look me up. I would tell every person who's listening, you can go look up Marion Mass. I, I practice in Pennsylvania. Um, my last name is spelled M-A-S-S. You can actually follow me on Twitter, too, at Mass underline underscore Marion. But you can look me up on something called the Physician Sunshine Database, and you can see what every pharmaceutical and device company has paid to me. And that's like a nice way to keep, doctors a little more honest in this process you know therefore a pharmaceutical company won't be just paying a doctor to make sure that they prescribe the drugs right but you know mm -hmm. along the way uh, our government <laughs> doesn't always do the right things um, in 1987 they gave the hospital middlemen called GPOs the right to receive legalized kickbacks so these, this industry that that controls the contracts for all hospital supplies can collect kickbacks from the manufacturers and then in 2003 the pharmacy benefit managers the people who make the formularies in other words they select what gets covered by your insurance company they have the same right so you have these two giant industries of middlemen and um, to put things into context everyone complains about how much money the insurance companies are making the pharmacy benefit managers are the revenue drivers when the large health insurer Cigna bought the PDM, the middleman, Express Scripts, their revenues tripled. Did you catch that? Whatever money that that Cigna, the big insurer, made, 
it tripled when they bought the PBM, the middleman. They're revenue drivers. They're cash cows. And they have the right to receive kickbacks. Rightfully, you can tell if I'm taking kickbacks. It should be like that. I'm happy with that. But these dudes, their kickbacks are all covered up. It's disgusting, and someone has got to do something about these monsters. Oh, absolutely. Now, this is a true story. We go through this every day. Um, We have two cats in the household, and each has to get insulin shots twice a day. And up until about maybe three months ago, each month's supply for the cat, for one cat, was over $300. Now we're doing two cats twice a day. So you can imagine what the expense was going out the window. And I did a little research, a little online surfing, and I found a pharmaceutical company where they would give you a certain card, and you go in, and suddenly it went from over $300 a month per cat down to $35. Now, that's, uh, that, that's very telling on exactly who, where money's going, isn't it? Oh, 100%, yeah. So it's like if you can bypass Actually, if, you, um, if people have been paying attention, there's a lot of talk about Mark Cuban's cost-plus drugs. I mean, he was very open about it, and I think he, like, when cost-plus drugs came out, they stated in very explicit terms, we're just bypassing the PBMs. We're bypassing the middlemen. So you can buy a lot of medications through, uh, you know, uh, Mark Cuban's company, cost-plus drugs, because you're cutting out the PBMs. I mean, like, ask yourself, what, what's their value anyway? You know, like, we what are they doing if if you can get your drug in a different way and, like, you can knock yourself back from, you know, whatever it is for, you know, most people, a vial of insulin, um, they need several vials to last them throughout a period of a month. So some people are paying, like, $3,000 for a month's worth of insulin. People are bigger than cats. So. Yeah, absolutely. But if you are someone that is low or middle income, where the heck are you going to get that money to pay for that the insurance oh, only well, paid just a small portion of it and you're left with that huge other side and then as you said someone decides what drugs go on to what formulary but is there any mathematics to it is there any rhyme or reason or is it just hey this is a popular flavor of the month so we want to get some more money so instead of being tier one or two we're going to put it up in tier three well that's the, the great suspicion and the patients are seeing the, the problem with this. I mean, because keep in mind, it's not just insulin. It's like every drug can work under the system. So there's patients with, uh, for instance, I've talked to patients that have had seizures and their seizures are well controlled on drug X, but along comes the insurance company with the PBM that they own because now the insurance companies own or are owned by the PBMs. And they say, no, no, you can't have drug X anymore. You have to move to drug Z. And they, they'll even do it midway through the year when you purchase your insurance. It's absolutely outrageous. Yeah, it, it's funny because I'm on multiple medications, um, and one of them was for regulating my heart. And I was getting the one, and it was uh, the name brand. And also now, after so many years, now the generic is able to enter into the market. And my course dropped in half. Now, what's the reason for that? Is that to reimburse the pharmaceutical company for their research and the cost of creating and putting the drug on the market? And then also now that cost doesn't exist anymore and now generic is just as good? I mean, I'm trying to understand why there's such a great uh, gap in the pricing. 
Right. You mean between a generic and a brand name? Right. What, what, well, I mean, look, it, and look, I'm a very transparent person. In college, I worked for the pharmaceutical company Merck. I did research for them. So I saw what that, what that looked like, right? And, I mean, what is it? It's billions of dollars to get a drug to market, and in part because of the legal fees that are incurred and so on and so forth. Now, I'm not, I'm not whitewashing the pharmaceutical companies. I mean, there's plenty of things that they do that we don't like. But, you know, for various medications, I mean, there's things that are saving people's lives. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the new technology, the new therapies, we're close to being able to cure sickle cell disease now. That's astounding. I mean, the number of people that have suffered from sickle cell disease. The, even just the, if you take a look at diabetes and the kinds of insulin that we have. You know, when I started medical school, I'm no spring chicken. I'm 55 now. I can, I can. Well, I don't, but I could join AARP. I don't like them because they are full. No, no, no. Amac. Uh, uh, Amac. Amac. Oh, baby, I'm a lifetime member. I'm a lifetime member. I love those guys. And Mm -hmm. but, in any case, if you look at the number of um, wonderful things that have happened, the innovation, even just in diabetes and diabetes drugs, it's astounding. I mean, we used to have to have diabetes patients measure up their insulin. They used to have to stick themselves like, you know, six, seven, eight times a day, you know, checking things, giving themselves shots. Now we have pumps. Now we have insulin that, like, lasts for a chunk of time, a longer period of time. So we have wonderful innovation. So, you know, I think we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know. I mean, we want to make sure that we are curing cancer, that we have, like, you know, the, the rare disease community. I was just in D.C., helping them to advocate. We want to make sure that people that are suffering, fine. I mean, because it's awful if all of a sudden you discover that you have a, a chronic disease or a life-threatening disease. But, you know, so I do think somehow we have to reimburse the innovation that's done. There are many hundreds of people behind each medication that's made, probably thousands of people. And, you know, there's, there's the legal fees, there's the research fees, and so on and so forth. Once again, I'm not whitewashing pharma. And the other thing that I want to add is I'm not, I'm not saying that the medication is a, a uh, medication is not the first place we should go as physicians. Now, I'm actually a pediatrician, so very few of my patients are actually on medications. And personally, I would rather, you know, do everything that we can preventatively or in a natural way as possible, but sometimes you can't. And so, like, I do think that branded drugs, you know, yeah, they do have to have a period of time for which the reimbursement is higher, and then along come the generics, but the generics have to be able to get onto the formularies and compete equally. But, mm-hmm. you know, if your competition is who pays the most money to get on the formulary because you allow kickbacks, then what you're doing is you're just selling your formulary placement. You know, and actually it's interesting. I do very dorky things like watch Senate hearings. I've even shown up at them sometimes or congressional hearings. And I remember... Um, during the, I think it was the 2019 hearings on the cost of insulin, uh, the, the, the CEO at the time, Merck, Ken Frazier, he actually said it just like that. He, he said, you know, it used to be that we had these, re, they call them rebates, the kickbacks. I hate the word rebate because it makes it feel like you're getting something, right? But he mm-hmm. said, you know, we, it used to be that the rebates were, you know, uh, a way to lower the cost of, uh, for the patient. But now... The rebates are a way to just buy your way onto the formulary. It, it's pay to play, you know, to get onto the formulary. Terrible. And no, then no. how can you even trust that it's the right drug for you? 
Well, now, who actually creates that formulary? I mean, would the formulary be the same for CVS Caremark or for Merck? Is it the same formulary, or is it company company different? Is it the PDM creates the formulary, and there's What's formularies the for the, the pharmacy benefit manager, the middlemen. The, these are the people that are making the most money in the prescription, you know, drug market. They're making the most money and they're controlling it because, because of the formulary. The insurance companies hired them to make the formularies. Then the insurance companies just purchased them or they purchased the insurance companies. It went both ways. And then so they're the ones that make the formulary. They accept the kickback from the pharmaceutical companies. And then, I mean, how can we assume anything other than you get your drug on the formulary because you pay the price? It, now, it's an, who, it, it's a, who, who controls the PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers? I mean, is this a government entity? Is this a private organization? I don't think people understand what this is and who controls it. Right. Well, I think they started out as private entities. As from my reading and my understanding, the first one was Blue Cross Blue Shield in-house uh, PBM called Prime Therapeutics. So, you know, they had the first one, and then in the last couple of years – the insurance companies, at first, the insurance companies would just hire out the uh, prescription drug benefits for the PBMs to manage, which included creating formularies. And this happened even for Medicaid, right? You know, so like if you're a big, you know, you're, you're like, we'll use Ohio as the example. In Ohio, the state Medicaid was run by, I can't remember, I think they used two of the three big PBMs. And you know the names of these companies. The, the they, I'm not sure whether they used Express Scripts, CVS, or um, Optum. You know, those are the big three. And almost everyone knows those names because they get letters from them. But, you know, so the state Medicaid program just hires these guys, and they have a lot of control. They have the control over the state Medicaid programs. They have control over um, the insurance companies that now own them and control over the formularies for the insurance companies that each of them is owned by. You know, United owns Optum, the PBM. CVS Health owns CVS Caremark, and they also own Aetna. Express Scripts is owned by Cigna. Those are the big PBMs, and now they're tied to the insurance companies. So who controls them? Well, no one is controlling them, because when you take the combination of the insurance company and the PBM, think of the money involved. We all think insurance companies make too much money, but the PBM is making more than the insurance company, and now they're married together. And to make it worse, you know, like look at the case of something like CVS. They have all those little stores with all the little robotic-looking hearts on them all over America. You thought Mm -hmm. they were making money out of those stores. No, they're making it from the PBM. And, like, think about the conflict of interest of owning the pharmacy. And in the case of Optum, this is wild. United Healthcare owns Optum, the PBM. Optum owns the practices of more physicians than any other company in America. They own the doctors. It's horrific, the integration that's here and the conflicts of interest. Wow, wow. That, that is amazing. That's amazing because um, my insurance is through CVS. So now I'm paying for the insurance into CVS. I'm paying for the prescription. And when I pay for the prescription, there is a rebate that well, t- logically I should be getting the rebate, but instead, no, it's going 
back over to the PBMs into their pocket, which then trickles down to the insurance company. But then again, the doctor uh, who is hired or who's working for the PBMs insurance company is now a piece of the action. So if he do, or she doesn't prescribe a certain medication so many times, they could be in trouble and not have and find their job in jeopardy, and maybe find that they're not going to be able to be hired anywhere else because they were such a bad boy or girl. This is this is really amazing. Oh, it's totally shocking. In the case of CVS, they actually, to my knowledge, they don't own physician practices like Optum does. What they have is they have their little minute clinics, and when they announced that they were expanding the minute clinics, they made it clear they didn't want doctors. They're hiring non-physician practitioners. They, they claim that they would hire nurse practitioners. So I've actually had patients who have told me, um, you know, I, I work for a, a large pediatric hospital and I do uh, like an urgent care setting. And so I had a patient that came in and said, look, I'm paying out of pocket because I have Aetna insurance. And Aetna told me I have to bring my kid who has a chronic problem to CVS Minute Clinic, but I don't want to go there. So I'm coming to you and I have to pay cash because it would have been zero copay to go to CVS Minute Clinic where I wouldn't have seen a doctor, but I'd rather come to you where I could get a real doctor. But think about what CVS can then do. They could take their mm-hmm. Minute Clinic, they can take their nurse practitioner at the Minute Clinic, they can push them, push certain prescriptions. They can even push them to say, oh, while you're at it, you know, go to aisle five and buy this product. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's wild you know, the yeah. conflict, and you're so smart to point out how you're not getting the rebate. I mean, I, I published a piece, it's my uh, pinned tweet, talking about how in a recent Senate hearing, um, Senator Roger Marshall of Kansas, a Republican, and Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma, another Republican, they kind of teamed up on their line of questioning, and they forced the big PBMs to tell them like, where the rebates are going. And, and by the way, they're, they're, so they're going, what they started doing is they started funneling their money into a separate middleman that they created. And one of them has, they, their, middleman, their extra middleman that the PBMs created is in Switzerland. And they admitted that, one of them admitted that their rebate checks are going to their new middleman. <laughs> Someone, you know, uh, Senator Mullen asked, he's like, I've got six kids and they're in the ER all the time. And I don't get any rebate checks. Where are your rebate checks going? Well, we were told to send them to our new middleman. Wait a second. That guy over there, his middleman is in Switzerland. Well, the title of my article, your rebate checks in the mail to Switzerland. This is wild. It is. Wild. I know. It's very confusing, too. Well, the Senate Health, Education, and Labor Pensions Health Committee uh, is putting forward uh, some amendments uh, to the manager's I'm trying to figure out what the heck. Oh, the Pharmacy Benefit Manager Transparency Act is what they're trying to put these amendments onto. And the amendments would require drug companies to provide a transparency and justification report before raising drug prices by certain thresholds. Uh, It would require the Secretary of Labor to conduct a study on the fiduciary duties of the PBMs. Uh, open the door and expose exactly what these guys are doing. Um, but I, under this administration, I don't see much happening on this, that's for sure. Uh, require a well, study on access to medication for opioid overdose reversal. Now, this this is a huge 
problem that we have with these overdoses, uh, in some cases I would call, especially when it's dealing with fentanyl, not even an overdose. That's a poisoning because most people don't even know they're taking fentanyl and they're being poisoned. But I'm sorry, go ahead with what you were going to say. Oh, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the Transparency Act because it is important that we have transparency, but I'd like to see them do something more because, like, if, if all we get is transparency out of this PBM deal, then essentially we'll probably have five years. In five years, we'll be able to see exactly how much they've been screwing us over, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a new, um, a new uh, act that was just introduced yesterday. Um, Senator Marshall was actually involved, and so was... Senator Wyden, a Democrat. So the Democrats and the Republicans are they're doing something amazing here. They're actually working together for the people's good. I mean, usually in healthcare, they work together to your detriment um, and to the detriment of the practice of medicine. But for the first time, they're, they look like they're working together. So what they're doing now is they're going to um, – it's called the delinking bill. And the idea behind it is that what it will functionally do, it will functionally make sure that the patient sees the savings of the rebate. Me personally, I'd rather just get rid of the rebates that are really kickbacks because no one should have the right to receive legalized kickbacks. And, you know, it's a totally anti-free market capitalism, you know, statute. But what they'll do is currently as it stands, um, the, the cost of the kickback is tied to the cost of the drug. So they're incentivized to put more expensive drugs on the formulary. This delinks the cost of the drug from the uh, cost of the kickback. So now they won't be able to pick more expensive drugs, and then they have to give a rationale for what they're picking. So this does a better job than just transparency. I was so excited yesterday to see this that they're actually going to go further than transparency because that's needed. I mean, transparency is great. I support it. But, like, if all you're going to do is say, well, we did transparency and we're going to back out, you know, Americans are going to have a couple more years of outrageous prices, and then they're going to be able to see what what those outrageous prices are. In the meanwhile, these guys will become richer uh, and more powerful, and that is the last thing we need. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, if they were to completely eliminate the rebates and just make it an honest drug cost, uh, but that's not what's happening, uh, because one of the things in the bill would be to prohibit group health plans and health insurance insur- issuers from entering into contracts that would prevent or restrict patient access to drug pricing information. I mean, it, it's nice to know what I'm paying for and where is that this money going, who's getting it. Uh, eliminate the rebates. Uh, just make the price what it is. Uh, and then all of a sudden we're going to see that middleman disappear, won't we? Well, it would be so nice. And, you know, like I will say, I mean, I, I know a lot of people say, Marion, you just want to make the PBMs disappear. No, I want to make the big unethical PBMs disappear. But there, there are certainly people that have to help move some of the, you know, move some of the product around. There's people that have to make sure that uh, people are getting paid appropriately. I mean, no one should be working for free if they don't yeah. want to. But, you know, so there are there are actually very transparent pass-through PBMs that could come and fill their spot in the market. Um, you're 100% spot on. I would love to see the, the kick... I would love to see kickbacks illegal for everyone again. But yeah. I, will that happen? I, I could tolerate... I could tolerate making sure that the kickbacks are flowing to the patient and not flowing to the PBMs and the insurers and the profiteers because it's our but, money. 
Yeah, it is. But, you know, here's, here's the problem. If you say the word rebate to the consumer, they go, oh, I'm going to get some money here. I'm going to get a rebate. So let's, let's go down this avenue. However, not everyone is aware of a rebate. So you're going to get maybe 75% will get the rebate. The other 25% will ignore it and, and forget about it or not even care. So the rebate still is there, and it's a good marketing tool. And that's the problem with rebates. It can fool the public. And that's what we have to eliminate. Take the blinders off and make it just an honest transaction. Dr. Mass, it is a pleasure having you with us. You've got to come back on because there's so many more things to talk about. Uh, you, have, uh, you have helped build a website, uh, practicingphysicians.org. You're also involved mm-hmm. in Free to Care. That's the number two, free, the number two care.org also. And so there's more things we have to talk about healthcare and how it affects all of us. I'd be delighted to come back on. And also, if you have your producer send me a little clip of this, it's not like I have a huge number of people that follow me on Twitter, but for some reason, some of my tweets really just seem to get out there and amplified. I mean, I think it's because I'm just a normal person, you know, tired of practicing medicine with, you know, tied up and tired <laughs> of my patients getting screwed. And it's, it's about time to just fearlessly go out there and call it like it is. Well, actually, I'm chief cook and bottle washer here, so I'll get a hold of uh, Stefan and I'll shoot the clip over to him. Matter of fact, I'm putting this aside to remind me to shoot the clip to you, uh, and you'll get it it. today over the weekend. Perfect. Be sure to send me a link to uh, the show and you and a picture and a bio, and I'll talk anytime. (laughs) Oh, you're an angel. Thank you, and God bless for the hard work you do. All right. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Right, Dr. Marion Moss, check her out at Physicians. Uh, what the heck did I say now? I am screwing myself up. PracticingPhysicians.org and FreeToCare.org. So we bring on our guest, uh, Dan Perkins, who was supposed to be with us last week, but he needed his little nap time. Good afternoon, Dan. How are you today? I'm better, thank you. Uh, it's our pleasure. Um, you've got yourself some new projects going on. You've got your talk show, your podcast you do, the black and white of things. Um, you've got your your articles that you write that people can go to your name, danperkins.guru, guru, and see uh-huh. all the great things you do. Uh, we've had you on many times to talk about what you do for our veterans with songs and stories. Uh, uh-huh. My goodness, when do you really sleep? Outside <laughs> of sleeping through my show. <laughs> well, I get asked that question a lot. Uh, I have a I have a Fitbit and it keeps track of my hours of sleep that I get each day, and I get between four and six hours sleep a day. So I do sleep. Wow! Oh, you do. <laughs> Your wife must be very happy. <laughs> oh, you're the man I married. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, it, it's it, there's so many things going on. We're on. Uh, we just started on a on a new network. Uh, uh, local news, where we're operating, we're broadcasting not only in the metropolitan Fort Myers, Naples, Venice continuum, but occasionally I'll get picked up uh, with a national print. I do about, all right, rotating for probably 35 to 40 news blogs, and um, I'm in the process of writing my 10th novel right now and uh, trying to, to move... Uh, black and whites into a, a major player in uh, free speech uh, for the country. 
So lots of lots of things to keep me busy. Mm, definitely, definitely. And you recently had a podcast dealing with three moms uh, that you're trying to get back up, and uh, hopefully I can help you with that. I'll uh, be one of the mm-hmm. moms. <laughs> we'll see if we mm-hmm. get that going up and down. Uh, but do right. you, we need more conservative voices, more conservative news outlets where actual news is getting out there, and let people mm-hmm. make their own their own informed decisions. But right now, I mean. Flipping through the channels on the TV, and uh, my boyfriend will go flipping through them, and he'll stop at CNN or MSNBC. And next thing you know, I'm screaming at the TV. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> but we're not hearing news. We're hearing opinion. And right. they will color everything based upon their opinion. And uh-huh. if if you're not someone who's paying much attention you're absorbing that and says, well, because so-and-so says that, that has to be the truth. Right. But we've got to get how, – how do we get the truth out there? Well, people like you and I have to continue to broadcast and look for ways to ex- expand our programs and our networks to reach more and more listeners, and, and I'm doing that. And, and uh, it's not easy, but you've you got to do it. And, and you, sometimes you have to work uh, a long time. To get a place, and other times you you get it in one phone call. Uh, I'm about to go with a gentleman who uh, uh, has, uh, I think, six or seven networks, and he has about seven million uh, listeners on his network. And he saw me on his network through local news, and he says, "I've I've got to talk to this man." So. We did an interview. I did an interview with him last Thursday, and after we were done with the show, uh, he said, "Well, what else are you working on?" And I, I told him that I'm working on a movie for my uh, book on dementia. And he said, "Tell me about it." And I told him about the book and how it's a unique and a different approach to dementia, especially for young children. And his mother has dementia, early onset, and and his two sisters and his father are in denial. So he's stuck with the responsibility to try and deal with his mother. And I talked to him about the book, so I sent it to him. I said I would send it to him, and then we talked about songs and stories for soldiers and how many hospitals and facilities we're in and how many tens of thousands of players we've given away. And and he's, he basically started crying. He said, I, I, I've, I haven't met somebody that has, has that much passion for trying helping people. And, and I said, well, it's just I'm 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 doing what the Lord's telling me to do, and and that's true. I, I'm working on trying to help people, and um, and what I do is it is the direction of of the Lord. So um, I'm I'm on a new mission. I've been writing a little bit about it. I'm going to write more about it, and that is my brothers and sisters who are conservatives who are Republicans, who are independents, do not understand how they are being manipulated with reparations. Oh, yeah. And what, I, what I've been saying and writing about is that reparations is the, going to be the theme of the Democratic Party in the 2024 election. And um, I'm going to sneeze. God bless. Excuse me. God um, bless. 
thank you. Um, live television, you get to see, you have to sneeze, <laughs> um, and that's that's fine. But anyway, so what I've been trying to do is to trying to help the the, the Republicans, conservative, and independents, because their reaction, Andy, their reaction to whenever there's a story about reparations, that's they say that's just silly. It's not going to happen. And what they don't understand is that the Democrats have a serious problem. They lost a significant percentage of their votes in the 2022 midterm election. It was mm-hmm. only through manipulation of the ballots that the, the Democrats got what they got. So they've got to come, and, and they basically abandoned the idea, a traditional idea of going out in the neighborhood, knocking on doors, town meetings, is all through ballot manipulationists, and and the D- Democrats are afraid that the Republicans are going to start doing a lot of the things that the Democrats are doing. So they've got a problem without an 85% voter participation rate in the, in their black community. They don't win anything. And mm-hmm. so what I'm saying, what I'm saying in my commentary, not only do I talk about the numbers, but I'm talking about how the the message that they're sending to the black community is that the Democrats are going to help you get reparations for slavery. And they're talking such outrageous numbers. But, for example, the commission in, in, in California, oh, yeah. that was, they're investigating this for uh, the governor. They were saying, well, how are you going to pay for all this? Their response is it's not the responsibility of the commission to figure out how to pay for it. It was the responsibility of the Newsom said this, is to determine what it might be, what might be an appropriate amount. So that when I when I write about this, I talk about the money and I talk about what it's going to cost. But I'm also saying to the people, uh, and I, and I said uh, before Newsom, before the commission made its recommendation to the state legislature. Newsom had been very quiet about reparation in terms of monetary. When the numbers started coming out of three and a half to seven and a half million dollars per black person in in the state of California, Governor Newsom basically kind of walked away from it and said, "Well, reparation has to be more than just money," because he doesn't he, what the what the at a million two it would cost the state of California one point eight billion dollars uh, that's for those that are way. already living there but if as right. i was reading some of the stuff about that uh you don't have to actually be a resident of california you can show up stay there for a couple of days and get your money and leave and there's, right. there's there's no there's no uh, requirement there's no way to they're not even asking if you had been a descendant of a slave, not even asking that as a requirement. So even myself, I can claim I'm a descendant of a slave, go in there, get my money and leave. So that's a very conservative figure in what we call the state of California. Right. The other, the other thing along with that is that um, Pew Research did a study a couple of years ago, and they determined that approximately 20% of the black population currently in the United States was not born here. They mm-hmm. came from other countries as immigrants, not during the Civil War, but in the last 10 years, they came from other countries. So you're going to say, all right, first of all, 
we got to we've got to differentiate between who lived here and who didn't. So those people that came here through immigration, legal or illegal, are not going to participate. You've immediately created a, a, an element of tension in the black community between the 20% that won't get it and some up percentage of the 80% that will get it. So you've cut it now 20%. Now we're going to cut it again. These are things that are not being talked about in the black community. So uh, those people who study uh, generations and races and uh, lineage have always said that the mother is the source of the ethnicity of the individual child. So if you have a black man marrying a white woman, those children of that couple are, to, are, are considered to be white, which means that the lineage of the potential reparations because of black history and black culture and black relationships ceases when that white woman and that black woman, black man marry and they have offspring, that lineage is gone. So we've got to have, got to go through that. My point is, is that they're not talking about who's going to qualify other than to say black people. But when you start dealing with 20% of the people are, are immigrants to the country who were not born here, have no history, family relationship to, to slavery and other things, you're going to diminish the number of people that are, will be available. Now, that still doesn't mean there's going to be a huge amount of money. But what I'm saying is that the, the Democrats haven't figured out that it's going to create a tremendous division in the black community. Why, yeah. why am I not getting my share? Now, at a recent reparation board meeting in California, a black gentleman stood up at the meeting and he said, Quote, I don't care about police reform. I don't care about fire departments. I don't care anything. I just don't want to know what am I going to get my $3 million check. <laughs> and yeah. so what I'm saying is that the Republicans, the Republicans are going to get, if, if they don't handle this properly, they're going to wind up being criticized by the Democratic Party for stopping reparation to and using that against, against, the Republicans to try and get black people to vote for them. Now, Gavin Newsom, which is on again, off again, being considered as a possible replacement for Joe Biden, he is saying we can't, California can't afford this. It's a national program. Now, I don't know whether it was orchestrated or was this a matter of happenstance. But the next day after Gavin Newsom said it has to be more than the money because the state doesn't have the money, what happened was that one of the squad members introduced a bill for $14 trillion to have reparation funding done at the federal level as opposed to the state level. So what happens is Gavin Newsom is off the hook for being critical because he's going to support the idea that reparation should be paid for at the, at the federal level. Now, at $14 trillion, that's almost half of the total outstanding debt of the United States right now. And I know that they're going to say we can tax the rich to get the money. I, I, the, rich, the rich don't have the $14 trillion. 
So they're going to they're either going to print bonds and bankrupt the country in order to do it if it passes, uh, or they're going to have to be a significant decline in the amount if it passes in the amount of reparations that will be paid, which will ultimately be disappointing for the black community. Well, what they're basically doing is creating two separate classes within the United States, and they're going to racially divide those classes. So there'll be the haves that got the reparations, and then the have-nots that are blamed for what caused the need for reparations. And mm-hmm. now I'm only second-generation American. I'm just mm-hmm. two generations away from the old world. So why am mm-hmm. I paying for reparations that my family had nothing to do with? And even then, right. why am I paying for the sins of someone's father? Mm-hmm. I didn't create the sins. I didn't do this. And now right. we are uh, how many generations away from the last living slave? I'm sorry. I, it, there was a problem? Yes. We corrected it? Yes. But do you need to rub the salt into the wound to force it? Into, it that way it's not going to heal. The wound will never heal if you add more salt to it, which is what they're doing. But yet, right. how can they control the vote and the population unless they force us to be divided? Black versus white, rich versus poor. It's pure communism. Yep. It's the Communist Manifesto. Thank you very much, Karl Marx. Yep. And, 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 and my greatest concern is that you and I talk about it, and I write about it p- periodically just to keep it, and I talk about it on shows that I do on my own shows. But I'm saying this, that I believe that, that my, my fellow Republicans and conservatives and independents are not paying enough attention to what's being manipulated in the background and how they are using reparations to pit the blacks against the whites. Exactly. They don't think it's going to happen, and yet it's happening right in front of them, and they refuse to see it, just absolutely refuse to see it. And, and um, it, it, I'm telling you, it will be... It will be the primary issue in the campaign in 2024, regardless of who the Democratic candidate is for president. It will be there, and it will be something that we'll have. To, we're going to we're going to wind up playing catch up, and they're they're laying all the fodder right now, and we're doing nothing about it, you know. And and uh, I talked to a lady here in Florida uh, this past week, and I was talking to her about this, and there's a. a she said, well, that's just silly. And I said, no, you can't say it's silly because you have to take it serious because the Democrats are going to use it very seriously against you in the, midterm, in the, in the presidential election. And I don't care who the candidate is, they're going to use it because it doesn't make any difference which the candidate is for the Democratic Party. They're going to use it. And we're not doing anything now in advance to, to change what's what's going on and getting out there and talking about it you know it it's it's amazing the same in in the same church if you would but a different pew um again how the the democrats are trying to set up the agenda um you may have heard that today tonight at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, California, mm-hmm. the, the L.A. Dodgers are, sparting, are, are having a 
special night for gay nuns. Oh, yeah. Well, not gay and, nuns. Those, 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 the sisters of, what, what do they call it? It's a bunch of men dressed as nuns, but telling you to go right. out and sin some more. And what they're doing right. is, in your face, putting the middle finger up to the Catholic Church, and especially yes. to the women of the Catholic Church, the nuns, who mm-hmm. do so much good work, and all mm-hmm. in charity. Uh, and what they're doing is dis- trying to destroy any belief in God in this country. And they're mm-hmm. saying, whatever is permissible, if it feels good, do it, despite any ramifications to anyone else around. Right. And, and then we had the, we had the, the guest, the, the president's guest, the people from the gay community, transgender community at the White House, and a couple of women took off their tops to parade around on the White House grounds. And Mr. Biden didn't seem to say anything negative about it. No, he didn't. And and I'd like to add that um, going back to the issue with with reparations in the black community, Mm -hmm. most of the... Did we just lose Curtis? Curtis, you just dropped off. What I think Curtis was going to say is he posted it in the chat room also. Curtis, you're dropping in and out. Hmm. What about now? Uh, you're now good. Tell, tell, us what you, tell us what you wanted to say. Okay. But what I was going to say is that most of the people who are for reparations that are black are not going to, re, you know, vote Republican. So I'm not so much concerned about that as I am them giving it away to everybody if they were to get this pass. Well, let me ask you a question. Um, there are some people in the black community, some prominent people in the black community, who are absolutely opposed to reparations. They think it's demeaning that it's that uh, the, the, as Annie said early on, they didn't have anybody here that was that owned slaves and sold slaves, and uh, uh, and why, why should they? Why should the rest of America have to pay for whatever? But but again, Curtis, what they're not saying. They're not saying that it wasn't the Republicans who were responsible for the continuation of alternative slavery after the Civil War. It was the Democrats. Oh, and you wanted to know what I had to say about that? Well, you're right. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do is educate the black community about the true history of Mm -hmm. the two parties and the historical bond between the black community. Um, mm-hmm. If you ask most blacks in the community, black community today what um, party did Lincoln belong to, they would say Democrat because that's what they were led to believe, that anything mm-hmm. that's helpful to the black community originates in the Democrat Party. And right. they are surprised when I tell them no. And I said, you know, you folks talk about, well, what has white America ever done for for the black community? Well, 20-something years ago, maybe 30, I didn't have an answer for that. But today I do. And one of the things I tell them is, well, they freed your ancestors from slavery. As a matter of fact, mm-hmm. the very people, who white people who freed your ancestors 
are the very people you were taught to hate by the Democrat Party. And then right. I tell them about the sins of the Democrat Party and how they were behind slavery and supported it and had as mm-hmm. the militant wing, the KKK. And that opens mm-hmm. most of their eyes. So, yeah, I mean, they're out there lying about our history. But it's our job to correct that history. I agree. Yeah, what people fail to realize is they talk about civil rights. I'm sorry, the first civil rights legislation was by a Republican administration and Republican Senate and House that passed it in 1865. It was repealed and thrown into the trash can in 1895 by a Democratic administration and House and Senate not to be resurrected mm-hmm. until the 1960s when it was right. Republicans proposed it again in the 1950s. But in order for Lyndon Johnson to get certain things done, he said, well, Martin Luther King, uh, I'll tell you what, um, Daddy King, I'll tell you, if you give me X amount of votes, we will get this legislation passed. It was Republican re- legislation hijacked by the Democrats and claimed and owned by the Democrats when all along it was Republicans that formed it and pushed it and kept on pushing until it was finally passed. And they were willing to allow the the Democrats to take credit for what they worked so hard for so long to do. I'm sorry. My rant for the day. And that's that's why I say during Black History Month, you don't hear a peak out of any of our leaders on the Republican side about the, the, the good things that this party stood for and what, you know, we have done for the black community mm-hmm. and race relations. You don't hear nothing from them. So either they right. don't know about it, their own party's history, or they don't think it's relevant today. And believe so, you me, I have yes. awakened a lot of people and got them to see the light and vote, you know, their belief systems. And that's Republican because they didn't know any better. So let me let me continue with a couple of other sidebars of this issue. The squad introduced legislation two weeks ago to uh, fund have the federal government fund reparation to the tune of fourteen trillion dollars. About half of what our national debt is today. Okay, but let me let me oh, yeah. let me put that in perspective that most people don't understand. Lyndon Johnson decided that he was going to attack poverty in America. And so he created the Great Society. Great Society. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you know how much money this country has spent on Great Society and its and its continuing projects since it was funded? Mm, over a trillion dollars, at least. How about at $29 least. trillion? Dollars? Oh, yeah. And how much did we improve the quality of life for the poor blacks in this country? Zip for $29 trillion. And they want to give, this leads to the second point, and I, I, I wrote a commentary on this subject matter for uh, Medium, which is a, a news blog, and I, I got 3,800 responses to that column. What I basically said uh, I am a registered investment advisor. I've been managing money for over 50 years. And when I was working for Merrill Lynch in New York, I created a program to help people 
who received large settlements as a result of personal injury claims. And we put together with one of the largest tort liability law firms a special program to help those individuals to manage the money. The reason Mm -hmm. why we did that is that the major tort liability attorneys that I work with in the United States in putting this program together said that a settlements in excess of $3 million were gone in five years or less. Yeah. Now, Same, with now Same with the lottery. Same with the lottery. Same with the finding people that win big pots in the lottery. They're right sure. back to square one. They're poor. They're even poorer than when they won the money. And so what, I, what I've been saying is that that to give every black person in California $3 million, the vast majority of those black people have no experiencing and manage a significant amount of money. And so they will spend it, give it away, or waste it, and it'll be gone in three to five years. Mm-hmm. What are they going to do next? What are they going to do next? Are they going to come back and ask for another three to five million because they did a job, a poor job? I also think that this is a going to be, if it were to happen, and I hope it doesn't, but if it were going to happen, this would be a tremendous opportunity for organizations like Black Lives Matter, to change their program to be providing investment advice on what to do with the money that people are getting. Now, and how much do they got to pocket? Well, a, a lot. And, and, and what's going on now, you may have read following this, Black Lives Matter is on the verge of bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they've got all kinds of things going on with the money that they squandered and spent and gave to relatives and friends and I think the same thing is going to happen with this reparation. So uh, I don't see, I just don't see people being able to, all of a sudden, as you said, like winning the lottery, uh, being able to handle the uh, their money. And um, uh, I, I think that's going to be really a, a, a huge, uh, huge problem for people. And uh, it's just another part of the idea that um, uh, that these people know how to deal with uh, three million or seven and a half million dollars, and and um, uh, so it's going to it's going to be wrought with fraud and deception and, and theft, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, uh, but I, as I said, I got more comments about that particular commentary than anything I've ever written, and and the the vast majority of people were talking about. They weren't saying whether they were black or white. They were saying the issue of being able to manage a large, a large sum of money without any experience put them put those people would put those at people risk. in at risk right. that it would be yeah. stolen. Well, Dan, we've we've got our next guest in the line, and since you okay. and Curtis are residents from Florida, I think you might be interested. Do you want to hang on because he's running for Senate uh, against Rick Scott as a Republican? You want to hang okay. on? Sure. Okay. I'll, well, I'll listen for a while. Okay. Well, let's bring on to the show. He's running for the Senate from the great state of Florida, where Dan Perkins is a resident who's listening in with us, and maybe we'll jump in the conversation. And my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, also a resident of Florida. So, so far, Keith, I may already have you two voters. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, it is our pleasure, our pleasure. Um, I got your message from uh, Michelle, and thank you for having her send it to me. And I just wanted to jump on here because I'd love to bring in candidates and find out why they're running and what is it you're looking to do. Uh, because right now I'm seeing people jumping into races that are complete outsiders with really good chance of success. Um, what's bringing you into the game here? Well, I think that's a good point. A lot of outsiders are jumping in, and that's a good thing. That's really what we need is we need fresh leadership in Washington. The reason I'm running really comes down to one thing, and that's, that's honesty. I mean, I'm running for United States Senate because we deserve honest representation in Washington, someone who's going to put Floridians first. I'm tired of watching corrupt politicians who go in and they get rich at our expense. I believe in the Constitution, protecting our seniors, protecting working-class families, standing up to the federal government. Well, that's that's a real big thing that we have to do because the government is really now becoming so large, so overburdened, especially under this administration. And they're now using it as a weapon against the honest citizens out there. Uh, we can take Donald Trump as a perfect example of using, weaponizing our government to go against your opponents. Absolutely. I don't think it's ever been this bad in our country's history. And everyone who's in Washington now, it seems like – at every chance they get, they look for a way to pass a new law instead of what can we cut? How can we get rid of some of this overspending? How can we reduce the scope of government? Because ultimately, when you have a government that's this big and this powerful, of course it's going to be weaponized against us eventually. That's why we have a strong constitution, and we need to start pushing back and holding our government to those original constitutional mandates. Well, now, you're coming up against Rick Scott for a primary. Um, and looking back at Rick Scott's, um, uh, I'm trying, I'm, the word just escaped my mind, um, but his history. He's gone on both sides of issues in several different areas, which I thought was rather uh, curious. Uh, he was highly pro Second Amendment, but then he supported raising the age to purchase to the age of 21. Uh, I don't see anywhere in the Constitution where age in purchasing a firearm was listed. Well, you're spot on. He also signed in red flag laws that allow the government to seize weapons and ask questions later. That violates due process rights. So, of course, he attacked Second Amendment rights with respect to age, and that's unconstitutional. In fact, laws just like the one that he signed into effect when he was governor have already been struck down in federal courts. That's an unconstitutional law, and he never should have signed it. But it gets back, as you pointed out, to the general hypocrisy that we've seen out of Rick Scott, and it's one of the reasons I'm running against him. The man's got a track record of fraud and abuse like none other, and he belongs in prison, not the Senate. So the <laughs> idea that we should send him back for another term is just insane. We can put anyone else up there and come out better than Rick Scott. And if we put someone like me who's gone from nothing to building national companies, doing it the hard work, the honest way, someone who believes in protecting the Constitution, that's how we start moving the ball forward for Florida and for the United States. Well, we've seen a lot of candidates. Oh, go ahead, Dan. Jump in. I just wanted to, I wanted to throw in a couple of, of questions to help see if we can help define the candidate. Um, that the House had a vote this week as to whether or not to censure Representative Schiff for his activities during the 
the uh, Russia collusion situation. He, he didn't get censured. In fact, nothing happened because 20 Republicans voted to support him in office. What would you what would you do to those 20 Republicans? I would suggest that someone primary them because those people don't deserve a Republican seat representing us. There were 20 that voted against censuring Schiff, and there were yes. others that were absent. You know, my hometown rep, Neil Dunn, he was absent for that vote. The idea that that sort of thing isn't important enough to show up and vote or to vote, you know, in favor of censoring someone who's wasted years of our time, disrupted a president's ability to run his administration, cost the taxpayers, I think I saw the figure of over $32 million on a bogus investigation that he knew was bogus. I, mm-hmm. I don't know why anybody would be against censoring that sort of activity. I don't either. I, I, I appreciate that. And, and the second thing I would ask you, what if I said to you, I'll vote for you if you agree to limit your terms to two terms in the Senate? Well, I'd say if you guarantee me that we can dismantle the deep-seated administrative state within those two terms, you know, term idea, term limits are a good idea. The problem with term limits coming right out of the gate is we have a massive federal bureaucracy that is in there for decades at a time. And if you term mm-hmm. limit the people's voice, our legislators, but you don't term limit the deep state, they're going to eat our rookie legislators for lunch, and the people will lose even more power than they've already lost. So I say term limits are great after we dismantle the administrative state. So could you, would you support uh, the idea, it sounds like you might, would you support the idea in people above a certain level uh, in uh, in jobs within the administration uh, that uh, they also have a, a, a statutory limit of how many years they can serve. Absolutely. I think that's important. And one of the ways that that can be effectively implemented without a per se limit is just by removing the current restrictions that bar the executive from terminating employees in an at-will capacity. So like when Donald Trump was president, he wanted to fire a lot of these federal bureaucrats, and he ran up against the right. brick wall. They couldn't be fired. It's like worse than a union. Right. Yes, you're absolutely right. Well, there is the problem. What do you think? The federal uh, government... Oh, I'm sorry, Dan. I'm sorry. I was just going to say the, the problem with getting rid of federal employees is that they do have a union now. Uh, but it's it's the they're watching their own. I mean, you're there, you're a government employee, and yet you're the union that's controlling it. There's there's no oversight over them. There's no control. So what we need to do is first get rid of the unions out of federal government. Wouldn't that be the first thing to do in order to reduce government? I, you, that could be, but it's my understanding, and, I, uh, and I've, I've done some research on this, even though you're right that there are unions involved in many of the administrative jobs, the President of the United States has the power under the Constitution to do reduction in force and override the, a union contract. So the President, for example, I wrote a proposal for Donald Trump uh, when he was running for the first time. You could say anybody who is, has worked for the government for 20 years or more <clears throat> has to retire at their next anniversary 
with their full benefits, period. And so that you you create a situation where you treat them fairly, you give them their retirement, and uh, send them on their merry way, but after 20 years, they're gone. And and he can do that because he is he he is responsible for the budget, and he if he has to reduce the budget, and it requires him to re, a reduction in force, he could do that even with union contracts. Okay. Now you had another question for uh, Keith. Go ahead, Dan. Well, I was curious as to what what he thought was the biggest challenge for a new incumbent Republican center coming into the current Congress? Well, naturally, you know, one of the most important things you can do as a senator is build a consensus and build a group of other senators who can team up with you and help you get things done because you can't get anything done on your own. So really that's where a lot of the efforts would be spent in, in the first few months there. You know, also, of course, we'd be assembling our budget review committee and going through our draft legislation and updating that in preparation for filing. Uh, There's a lot of things that have to get done really fast when you're a brand new senator and we're ready to hit the ground running and get that done. One thing that uh, you may have seen recently, there's been some discussion that, and, and I'm going to, I'll use you as an example, but it's not just you. It's, it's all 100 senators. We don't know whether you're a crook, a convicted felon, or what, because when you when you run as a candidate for office in the, in the federal government, there is no background check done to determine who you are. Would you be in favor of background checks as candidates? Yeah, I think that would be a good idea, particularly for somebody that's going to run for something like I am, like the U.S. Senate, where presumably you're also going to need a security clearance to review most of the information you're going to need to review in order to provide effective oversight to the government. Now, I can tell you, I mean, I was in the military. I held a security clearance, so I'm not worried about that. But I can tell you that from a financial perspective, the Senate Ethics Committee has some very strenuous rules. You know, they put out a booklet of 70-something pages of rules, and I had to submit a financial disclosure that gets into every detail of your economic life and your spouse's and it's pretty mm-hmm. detailed. So between that and, you know, media vetting, if the media is doing its job, it's going to look into all these things and and check out every candidate. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to make sure we're selecting quality candidates who really need I to agree. be representing us in Washington. I agree. You, Thank you. You think, you'd think they would have that for any candidate running for president of the United States because um, we had, as you know, we had circumstances a couple of years ago where there was a candidate whose um, um, birth place of origin was in question. Was he a United States citizen, a British citizen, or was he from um, Africa? And I think the same thing was with um, a person called John McCain, because I think he was born on a base outside the United States. We need to make sure that, you know, our candidates are well vetted so these issues don't come up after these folks can raise a lot of money and, um, you know, their campaign caught fire. And then all of a sudden we, we got questions as to whether they're a natural-born citizen or not. Because as far as I know, the Constitution is very clear on this matter. 
You cannot have dual citizenship. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of vetting that goes on, particularly, as you mentioned, with presidential candidates. By the time they get pretty far into the process, they're going to be offered daily security briefings, and that's going to require a pretty extensive background investigation. I think it would be a glaring red thumb to the media if they were told, well, all of these candidates are receiving security briefings except this one, but we won't tell you why. Of course, everyone would know why. So I think the vetting happens. It's just not as open and obvious as perhaps it should be. Well, now, here's Annie, another question. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just want to – I have to go, but I want to ask one more question, and then I'll, then I'll, I'll uh, give it back to you. Okay. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying, and, and, but what I want to know, as you're on the trail talking to people in Florida about you wanting to be their next senator, what are, what are my constituents in Florida – where I live also, what are they saying to you? What are you hearing? What are the themes? What, what, what are the concerns of the people of Florida? Well, I tell you, the biggest theme is every time I give a speech at an event or like an REC meeting or something, there is a line of people afterwards who want to tell me how glad they are that someone is finally running against Rick Scott because the only reason he's in that seat is because he wasn't opposed. And they're happy to have somebody who's going to go in there and bring some fresh blood to Washington. The other thing they usually want to talk about is our open border, the rampant immigration issues that we have because the Biden administration has opted to completely ignore the law and let our border get overrun. And the other issue they want to talk about is the economy. And it comes back to the same thing. Excessive government spending has driven inflation through the roof and has effectively undermined the purchasing power of everyday Americans. We've got to get our government spending under control, and we've got to secure our border. Those are two of the most important things that I hear repeatedly. Thank you. Annie, thanks for having me on. i got to run. All right, Dan. We'll talk later. And happy Father's Day. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Bye. Take care. I do have to tell you, Keith, he does have his own uh, show and everything he does. He also is very widely written in uh, the print media. Uh, he's got uh, two books possibly being made into uh, movies or series. So uh, he's a good person. If you can get interviewed by him on his show, we'll give you a good exposure. Great. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. This is live, so you never know what's going to happen, who's going to pop in. Um, you had put out a press release uh, talking about abolishing the FBI and the DOJ. And we're looking at the witch hunt that we have with this administration against its opponents, a major opponent being Donald Trump and anyone within his sphere. Uh, there is nothing in the Constitution prohibiting the current administration or anyone else in office from going after their opponents using every legal uh, arm of the I, can't even say what they're doing is completely legal, but using the arm of government to quell their opponent. But isn't that what dictatorships do? Shouldn't we have some well, mechanism in place to protect the republic? We do. We need to impeach Biden for this ridiculous weaponization of our government. And if the FBI is not going to do its job, we need to defund and disband the FBI and take those dollars that we've been funneling through a corrupt bureaucracy in Washington and distribute them to state law enforcement agencies who are going to enforce the laws. But to your point about 
a, a president having the the right to go after someone who's legally appropriate to go after, it requires that a crime be reasonably suspected at least. And I think most of the things that he's been accused of, while people may not like them, probably don't amount to crimes. There's a lot of untested constitutional legal theories that would have to go against him in order for that to be proven otherwise. You know, as chief executive, he had broad declassification authority and under the Presidential Records Act, which if it even applies to him, you know, it, it gave him the authority to designate what was personal and what wasn't. Arguably, you could say the PRA may not even apply because at what point in the Constitution does the legislative branch get the authority to dictate to the executive branch its detailed procedures on how to manage documents? I can't imagine the legislative branch being okay with a president issuing an executive order that changes the rules of the House or the Senate. And so that interbranch co-equal separation is something that is really going to be tested in courts over time. But, you know, the other thing that keeps coming up to me with the idea that a president can go after someone who's broken the law is that that's the witch hunt of the first impeachment all over again. That whole thing with Ukraine started because Donald Trump said, hey, as chief executive, I want you to look into alleged corruption by a U.S. citizen in your country. That was a perfectly appropriate thing for our executive to do. Yeah, he was vilified for it. You know, when I was reading the stuff from um, Alvin Bragg and reading the stuff coming now out of Florida, uh, the major thing is, is what is the underlying crime? Uh, Alvin Bragg is saying that you abetted the original crime by doing these actions. However, he has never been charged. He has never been investigated. He has never been prosecuted for an original crime. You are alleging a crime occurred, but you have not proven that original crime has occurred. So how can you abet a crime that has yet to be even proven that exists? As an attorney, how do you, how do you answer that? Well, I looked at that, and as a former prosecutor where I've been responsible on behalf of the state for proving crimes, you break a crime down into elements, and you have to prove each element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. And looking at that entire indictment from Bragg and looking at the one that's been recently filed in federal court, you know, I don't see any reasonable way that you can prove each of the elements of these crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. And as a prosecutor, if you know you can't prove the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, it's unethical to bring the indictment in the first place. You know, um, we're listening to the uh, the sparring between DeSantis and Trump. And, you know, I, I ended up finding myself, I corrected myself. I admitted I was wrong, which I do. Occasionally I am wrong. But I had been under the assumption that the president and vice president couldn't come from the same state. And there's nothing in the Constitution that would prevent DeSantis being Trump's running mate. Am I looking at this correctly? That is the way it's been handled in the courts so far. It looks like you can have a president and a vice presidential candidate from the same state. Wouldn't that be a ticket? Yes, absolutely. Because as I did my further research is that the reason why you do not see that an exception was Cheney and Bush. However, five days before the electoral college vote, Cheney, if I can get my teeth in straight, 
Cheney changed his residence to Wyoming because now under the rules of the Electoral College, I think it was 1875, I may have that year wrong, they changed the rules that said that the delegates get two votes, one for the president, one for the vice president. They cannot make both votes for the state they reside in. So, for example, you've got the Electoral College delegate for the state of Florida. You've got DeSantis and Trump. That Electoral College delegate can only vote for one of those. They cannot place their second vote for both of them. Interesting. So, yeah, that's so it, it is a possibility that we can see a Trump and DeSantis ticket. That would be very, very interesting. But, hey, yeah. life goes on. Life goes on. Anyway, get back to your race, and you're going against DeSantis. Um, DeSantis has flip-flopped on immigration also. That was another thing that was glaring. Uh, he supported the, separate, the keeping together of the alleged family of these immigrants, yet nowhere do you prove through either DNA or other uh, avenues that that child actually belongs to that parent. And we found, in many cases, that was not the truth. Um, He supported tuition for dreamers. Uh, He's been lax on immigration ever since he got to the Senate. So he was one way when he was governor of the state and another way when he's senator. Which, Which, Rick Scott, are we looking at? Well, I think that's a good point. He's flip-flopped on a ton of things, and I look back at his actions and take those a little more seriously than his words. I mean, look at his proposal recently to sunset Social Security. First, he doubled down on it, and then eventually, after it cost us a midterm majority in the Senate, after he lost tons of votes for other Republicans, he tried to walk back this idea of sunsetting. But if you look at what he did when he was governor, he gutted the state's retirement program for state employees when he was governor. And so I don't think it's any surprise to anyone in Florida who's paying attention to see that he wanted to sunset Social Security. And I think people see through the disingenuous flip-flop where he tried to walk it back. He meant what he said the first time. That's why he doubled down. But like you said, there's so many other things. You know, like he wanted – he signed into two law a provision that gives discounted tuition to illegal immigrants. So a kid from Alabama who wants to attend a university in Florida would be forced to pay a higher tuition than someone who came across our borders illegally. That's as un-American as it gets. Mm. And then who puts the bill on the difference in the tuition? Well, guess what? It's the residents of the state of Florida. It's also the federal tax dollars coming from the rest of the nation that also subsidizes that college and its tuition. Uh, So you and I, in the end, pay for that illegal alien. And this is where we need to elect someone to the Senate and to the House that will stand for what is legal, what is constitutional, and not to flip-flop. But unfortunately, we have been seeing with this uh, one of the other things you mentioned, red flag laws, and that's a, that's a big one with me, but he also did something called predictive policing, where everyday mom and pop end up being investigated as if they were terrorists. Yeah, it's something right out of a sci-fi movie. It's like a utopian story of you know accusing someone before they've actually done anything because a statistical algorithm suggests that they may. The idea that our constitutional rights can be 
you know, disrespected or minimized is something that I don't think we want to see from a senator. And I think Rick Scott has proven that he doesn't respect our constitutional rights and that he's willing to do whatever seems popular at the moment instead of what's right. Absolutely. Now, the other thing he has been supporting is voter IDs. Now, voting should be a state issue in dealing with identification. Um, but going for a federal ID, uh, isn't that kind of crossing the border? Uh, first off, you're removing a state right. And secondly, you make a homogenous national ID. Do we really need that? I think it's one more contradiction, right? Saying you're for small government, but at every turn proposing to give the federal government more power and take more power away from the states. It just doesn't add up. I don't think we need to have any more power in the federal government's hands. We need to take away a lot of what it already has and put it back in the state's hands. Now, one other thing, um, I know the budget and stuff like that comes straight out of the House, then goes to the Senate where you marry your two bills. Uh, and you've been highly supportive of cutting back the powers through the DOJ and the FBI, possibly even abolishing them. Uh, what else would you like to see being done once you become senator, considering that you stay within those enumerated powers that the Constitution accords you? You know, I think we've got a lot of things to do, but the first and most <laughs> important thing we have to do is go through this sprawling government and cut everything that we can cut because we can't keep running up our debt every year, overspending without oversight, and just generally expanding government. I mean, look at this this last budget argument that the Congress had where the uh, the right was simply trying to bring us back to 2022 spending levels and the left was screaming as though that was just going to undermine the whole world. I think at some point, Government's got to get realistic about what we can afford to spend, just like every family does. We need to balance our budget. Absolutely. We do definitely do need to do that. Um, one other last thing before we let you go uh, is that they have been going after the Supreme Court. They talk about packing the Supreme Court. And yet we see unlawful protests going outside of the judge's house no legal action is being done to arrest these protesters. Oh, heaven forbid you're a member of the January 6th gang that you're still sitting in jail two years later. Um, what would you do to protect the Supreme Court and keep it where the balance of power is equal? Well, I think one of the most important things that can be done from the Senate's perspective is to ensure that when there's politics involved in policing like this when the left is given a free pass but the rights prosecuted prosecuted to the fullest extent we bring that to a close through the power of the purse and if they're not going to do their job and treat people fairly and equally enforce the law then we need to yank their budget and if they want if they want a budget back they can enforce the law fairly oh god bless well People can find you. Your website is your name, KeithGross.com, correct? That is correct. And I'm also on Twitter, KeithGrossFL. Happy to engage with any of y'all on Twitter or sign up online. Well, uh, my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, uh, is heavily involved in his uh, county GOP. So, Curtis, uh, maybe you got to see if you can get a hold of Keith and have him at one of your meetings. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. I'm, I live in Putnam County. 
Um, I'm sure you heard of Palatka, Florida. Oh, yeah. Just below yep. um, Jacksonville. So um, Annie has my contact information. If you want to come down to the REC or the Republican Club, just get a hold of me. Well, I will take you we'll up on that. that. We're going to be doing another leg of the bus tour soon, and I will take you up on, on that. I'd love to visit. Great, Absolutely. great. And I... I have a lot of ties to a lot of other groups in uh, Florida. Well, great. I appreciate your, your support and uh, look forward to speaking with you further. All well, right. God bless you for running for office, for willing to take on that the powers that be, and happy Father's Day to you. Thank you, ma'am. Y'all have a good one. You too. All right. Check All out right. Keith Gross, keithgross.com. Right. And we got our final victim, one of our favorites, uh, besides Hans von Zbikowski, because I just love saying his name whenever he is on the show, Hannah Davis of the Heritage Foundation. You can find her at heritage.org and the Daily Signal. Good afternoon, Hannah. How are you? Afternoon. I'm doing good. How are you? All right. got to be honest. Normally I have a couple of lines scribbled underneath each person's names, notes, but so much has been going on. I've been popping out uh, – print ads off my printer left and right and I haven't had time to write a single note so I'm going off the top of my head first and foremost uh, it blew my mind uh, because a friend of mine sent an editorial he wrote about this and I started looking at it and then I found that you actually wrote an article up on the Daily Signal about this what the heck is CBP1 mobile app, and why should we have our great bejesus scared out of us? <laughs> uh, the CBP1 mobile app is a way that the current administration is tracking the illegal aliens that they allow into the interior of the nation. So rather than uh, detaining them as they're supposed to do under the current law and all current statutes, uh, the current administration is just telling them to check in via this mobile app. Eventually, they'll get a date, a court date, which could be four, five, six, seven years in the future, um, and we release them into every congressional district across the U.S. and in the hopes that they do show up to their uh, court dates. So it's a, it's, a, it's a way the current administration is allowing for mass parole, and they call it a, a, a lawful pathway, but it doesn't make the pathway nor the illegal aliens using it viable U.S. citizens by any means. Well, you know, uh, you want to come to the United States. Uh, you don't want to come through legally. You just want to come the easy way in. And then, courtesy of the federal government and uh, NGOs and whatever else, um, you just download this little app on your smart device that you can get through the App Store or Google Play and CBP1, and you just tell them, hey, I'm looking to come in, so where can I meet you guys, and when can I meet you? Is that how it's working? It is, yeah, and the current administration likes to tout this statistic over and over that illegal border crossings is down by 70% because of this app. Uh, illegal uh, border crossing isn't down by any percentage. If anything, it's up, so uh, they keep using the 70% statistic, but it's really that they're just redirecting and renaming these people as lawful citizens or lawful pathways to lawful citizenship through this app. So they'll, they'll take them through a port of entry. They're saying, hey, we see that you're coming between ports of entry. We see you're climbing over the wall or crossing the Rio Grande. Why don't you just come to an office of field uh, patrol um, 
border area through the app, and then they, they say that they're going to be legal eventually, and that's how they're using it. And so by using this app, they're also saying that illegal immigration is down, but, it, but it's not. It's a, it's a smokescreen, honestly. Well, what's weird about this is that, all right, all right we're going to give you a time and date, but there's eight different areas that you can enter through you know, safely. Don't worry about it. Uh, so this way, uh, you're not going to be in the middle of the desert being raped and robbed. Uh, you just simply walk across. So now you cut out the coyotes. You cut out the drug cartels. Uh, so you can come across safely, but you're still here illegally. That doesn't change, right? Right, not at all. And uh, April was the fourth highest month we've had on record for uh, uh, illegal crossings. Um, and I include in illegal crossings the people who also use this so-called lawful pathway um, that the Biden administration has implemented. Uh, and, uh, oh, yeah, and you can access the app uh, at certain times. Uh, but if you can't access the app, you can still get a hold of us and we'll treat you as if you're coming through as if you're using the app, right? Right, and the app recently actually had a lot of um, had a lot of issues. People couldn't connect. People couldn't take photos. It wasn't reading faces. It wasn't taking the information in. You know, any type of technology is always going to have an issue. And then when you're bombarded with this on this app with thousands and thousands of new daily users, there's only going to be technological um, hindrances because of that. The best way to do this is the old the old fashioned way, which is proper vetting, screening, and detaining rather than the releasing of these immigrants. Oh, but wait, this gets better. They'll also provide you transportation in case you have problems getting over the the border. But you can also get advanced travel authorization if you're one of the approved users coming from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela. Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll even give you an airline ticket and put you on the plane. This is crazy. It is, yes. The, that parole pathway, quote-unquote, that you're talking about began in January. Basically, Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, there were 23,000 of those last month alone. Um, and they're able to come through uh, based on these erroneous and phony affidavits. They're able to sponsor other people. It's it's complete shell game. It's, uh, it's a smokescreen, and the American people deserve better, honestly. The current administration's just outright lying. Uh, the media is I, I venture too pliable and incurious to actually try and get down to the bottom of it. Uh, well, but if you don't want to wait too long, you can access the app, and you can find out 24-7 which, which lane is open the best, which way to come in the easiest way for you. You can check your status, too, uh, to see how far you've been you're processed. Uh, so, you know, you don't, don't worry. You're not going to stand out in the hot sun any more than five minutes, really. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot more streamlined for them than it is for me just trying to book a flight. Mm. Oh, but hey, 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 but there's another thing. Uh, if you want to bring in some agricultural biological products that normal people can't, are being told they can't cross the board, they can't bring in out, we're, we're going to turn our heads and look the other way, and you can request inspection so you can slip right on through, right? Oh, exactly. There's actually a some new policies that are being implemented that religious garb uh, cannot be, uh, can't be patted down if you're wearing religious garb. So I expect to see an increase in people claiming um, an ultra-religious status to avoid uh, actual pat-downs and screenings, and who knows what they're going to be smuggling in with them. Yeah, well, you can bring in fresh fruits and vegetables and meats. Oh, heaven forbid we tried to do that. You and I coming in, say, from, I don't know, uh, the Caribbean. Uh, live animals. 
Uh, so the pets, or you can claim their service animals or emotional support animals. So they're still a pet, right? Or, oh, wait a minute, hunting trophies. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're an illegal alien bringing a hunting trophy. Come on. Oh, yes. And um, a lot of these illegal aliens are also bringing in uh, unaccompanied children that they're posing as familial uh, units. So oh, you can bring people, we're get to you that. can bring ivory. We'll get to that one. But now, what is an I-94 entry? An I-94 entry. Is that what you ask? Yep, yep. It's basically needed for all all U.S. visitors, uh, returning resident aliens and aliens with a proper immigrant status. So they have a special section just for I-94 entries now. Yes. They do, and it's only yeah. I mean, they have a they have a special a special status for almost every single type of illegal alien that you could think of. Oh man, um, let me put this in a site. But I was reading an article. Let me see if I can find it. Where the heck I did it now? Um, where this mother and daughter came through. The daughter was 28 years old. However, she was enrolled as a ninth grader in school. You've got to be kidding me! Really? Yeah, you see that a lot. You see that a lot. People try to use their children as anchors or um, try to try to actually have uh, – they, they, they go into the U.S. and actually give birth and then use anchors as that way. You get a little bit more status, a little bit more ease when you're trying to immigrate into the U.S. if you have a child involved. That's why a lot of people who um, – a lot of people do pose as, uh, as minors, including known murderers, known gang members, um, and like this – the case that you just mentioned with the daughter. Yeah, this is out of Louisiana. And I saw a picture of the girl, and yes, she could pass for a teenager, uh, but she posed as a 17-year-old. I mean, she's 11 years older. She was attending classes, and the article that I read made it sound so sympathetic. She's a good student. She kept her head down. She didn't bother anyone. And yet, she was posing as a 17-year-old. She's a grown adult. You know, probably she may have a family somewhere that, you know, kids of her own that you don't know about, who Lord knows. Uh, but she's here on the taxpayer dimes, probably getting, you know, food subsidies for school and probably getting Section 8 housing and whatever else they qualify for, welfare, food stamps. Uh, so she's living off the taxpayer dimes, taking up school space where another student can be sitting. But there's no real big problem for this, is there? Well, firstly, I should hope she's a good student, seeing that she's got 11 years of knowledge on top of her classmates. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, there's a, and, and, and all of this, you know, once they're in, they're in, you know, and that's, that's the shame, and that's why we need proper border enforcement. Uh, before we can even think about interior enforcement, we need actual um, vetting, uh, actual detaining. Had, had, had a Customs and Border Patrol or an OFO officer actually had their eyes on this young woman for, you know, maybe more than the 10 minutes they probably did under the current statutes that the current administration is pushing through, you know, if, if, if the Border Patrol were actually able to do their job and keep this kid here for a little bit longer and detain her and actually properly vet her, things like this wouldn't happen. But once they're in, they're in, and it's very hard to get them out. Yeah. Well, um, Simon Hankson and Laura Reeves had put out an excellent article uh, under immigration on uh, the Heritage Foundation uh, 
the deceptive numbers and word games that are hiding the continued mass illegal immigration post Title 42. And mm-hmm. it's amazing how many different gymnastics this administration is going through to hide what is going on. Uh, they write that encounters with the border have averaged 3,400 per day since May 11th. Another 1,070 inadmissible aliens presented themselves at point of entry every day uh, using Mayorkas's uh, so-called legal pathway. Uh, and that mm-hmm. has expanded now to uh, over 1,200. And they write it's 37.5 thousand that are coming across each month. This does not include an additional 23,000 that are sponsored coming from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. I mean, for some reason, that group of, of nations, they get a carte blanche. Uh, but how many more are they going to try to expand into there? That's a good question. So it's two mass parole port programs that add up to over 60,000 per month as of today. And they're looking for it to go up over 200,000 per month. This is, this is outrageous. It's, it's absolutely insane. And it'd be one thing if the Biden administration was open about it. And, and the title of their, their piece is actually, it's, the report is, is perfect. It is deceptive numbers. It's a shell game. It's a, it's a short con with long-term consequences. Uh, and you said, you know, you mentioned off those uh, Central American nations and the people that are coming and, We've seen uh, Chief Ortiz, he, he retires in about three weeks, I believe, but uh, he, he recently tweeted out that there's been a 1,000% increase in Chinese, Afghans, Vietnam, Al- Algeria, Egypt, people from the Dominican Republic, 1,000% uh, increase in all of those people. Um, and it's, it's absolutely insane. It's like, who won't we let in at this, at this point? I was looking at some Chinese nationals numbers. You know, in 2021, there was only 342 Chinese nationals that came through our northern and southern border combined. And then in 2022, that got up close to about 1,900. And right now, in the first seven months of 2023, we're already at 9,700. So there's there's a trend here, and it's a dangerous trend, especially if you take into consideration um, the timely conflict we have surrounding Taiwan, you know, the fact that China is, is, is making the, the precursors for fentanyl chemicals. They're basically aiding and abetting the smuggling of people and drugs at our southern and northern borders. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter to the administration. Let's let everybody in. Let's let the Russians in, the Chinese in, the Venezuelans. We'll create a lawful pathway for everybody. But at the same time, we're going to say that, you know, illegal immigration is down by 70 percent. It's absolutely insane. I completely agree with you. Well, you had an excellent article that you wrote yesterday up on the Daily Signal titled Biden's Open Border Policies Are Killing Innocent Americans and Aliens Alike. And then you go on to cite various examples, but you're only hitting the very tip of the iceberg. And you mention now the increase of illegal aliens uh, and what no one's really talking about very much in the media except you guys that a vast majority of them are young men of military age coming from Islamic countries, uh, coming from communist countries uh, such as uh, 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 China. Why would we want these military age men to come in when we are already in conflict with many of these nations? They are our enemies. We're allowing them to come in and we now have an army within our own borders. Exactly. I think uh, I think these um, 
these communist nations are are setting they, they see the policies we have they see our open border policies and they say there's no need to engage no need to make a cold war a hot one right when we can literally just let these people infiltrate the u.s and destroy them from the within and we'll sit back and watch the flames um it's tactical I, I do I do know that for a fact that it's it's purposeful it's tactical and, and the long term ramifications are, are you know we see you know it's one thing to list off you know someone who had been deported four times ended up killing someone or someone who posed as a minor ended up um, sexually molesting uh, children at the school they were enrolled in that's one thing but at the end of the day it's going to accumulate to something much bigger it's going to be espionage it's going to be the stealing of secrets. Um, and you're exactly right. We shouldn't allow known adversarial nations, citizens, into any port of entry via any erroneous lawful pathway. Um, absolutely not. It's become our, – our open border is so bad that it's become a national security concern across the board. And, and no, other, no other laws are going to be able to fix the national security implications we've created without starting with border wall construction, increased – Border Patrol agents, increased interior enforcement, detaining rather than catching and releasing. Um, it's I could go on and on. Well, you know, a number of years ago, I believe under the Trump administration, there was a, a deportation of several Chinese nationals that were working in various labs and other secure facilities because they were stealing information and sending it back to communist China. Uh, and now... What that 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 we're not worried about that anymore. That that just doesn't matter. It's okay that to let them come, of course, illegally or on these visas, and again get, go right back to what they were doing before. See the the and, and that goes to show that the, the past administrations, whether it be Trump, Obama, Bush, you can go on and on. They they saw things through national security implications. They saw optics through those lenses. Whereas the current administration only cares about equity inclusion. If you go and deport you know, thousands and thousands of Chinese nationals, the first thing we're going to be called is xenophobic, we're going to be called racist, and it's only going to be bolstered by the claims of the current administration's policies. All they care about is inclusion, even if it's at the sake of their own tax-paying citizens. Well, I remember often either escorting someone to a hospital because they were what we called an aided case or arresting someone, and you were not allowed to ask their immigration status when you knew full well they were illegal. And heaven forbid you were escorting them to the hospital emergency room, they would have four or five different Medicaid cards with different names on them. And you knew none of them were the person's real name. They were here illegally. And the hospitals go, oh, don't worry, we'll just print up a new one for them to use. Uh, Our, you know, it's not just the administration, but it trickles all the way down to the very local level where it affects the everyday person in the street and you don't realize it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, statewide, there's a lot of states that have sanctuary cities, sanctuary counties, um, and these policies um, limit ICE and federal interaction with local law enforcement. So a lot of states, such as, you know, I mean, a lot of southern states have at least one or more precincts at the local law enforcement level that actively work with ICE when they arrest someone, if they have reasonable suspicion of an immigration uh, of, an, of an immigrant, illegal immigrant status, you know, they're going to, they're going to vet that and they're going to contact ICE. But these current policies by the 
by the Biden administration, do, they do. They trickle down, and it's a it's a nasty domino effect. And, and major cities, major sanctuary cities like New York City, San Fran, Chicago, they don't interact with ICE. They refuse to interact with ICE, and so it all comes out of the taxpayer's dollar. Um, the taxpayer's expense, um, you know, we see it in education systems. We see it in the hospital systems across the board. Uh, taxpayers, legal citizens of sanctuary cities, have to pay. They have to foot the bill. Well, you know, I, I sometimes talk about every once in a while a friend of mine, Bob Mishadi, uh, he was killed by an illegal alien uh, when in the line of duty. Uh, he went and he did a stop and he was killed and murdered. Turns out another friend of mine, uh, Mike Cutler, uh, was, the illegal, was the ICE agent assigned to our, uh, our borough in New York City. And he physically had deported the guy several times, actually walked him across the border, only to have him come back and, cle- and murder police officer Mashadi. But that, I'm talking about, occurred back in 1989. But what is happening today has, is a huge explosion, more a hundredfold, I would say, what I am seeing, um, how law enforcement is having their hands uh, cuffed. They're, they're being handcuffed, not allowed to do their job and say, all right, fine, uh, we picked you up for a crime. Now we see that you're here illegally. We're going to prosecute you for the crime and then hand you over to ICE to have you deported. But ICE isn't really deporting them anymore, are they? No. And uh, back in the 80s and 90s, of course it still happened, and I'm sorry for your loss, but um, it was a much more rare scenario. And, 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 and you're exactly right. It happens daily daily all the time and it, it's and it makes sense for law enforcement to be the one you know they're at the first they're at the front line it would make sense that they would encounter they would have more deadly encounters with migrants than other people but now it doesn't matter now it's your children it's your school teacher it's your bus driver people people checking groceries out of the store everybody is susceptible to the crime the crime wave we've had since um rampant mass illegal immigration has occurred across across the states um, and the only way to stop this is for the states, because, because the Biden administration is not going to change, and we know that. And God forbid if they get four more years, it's only going to exacerbate the, the situation. But what the states can do is they can, they, can get rid, they can get rid of their sanctuary city policies if they have them. If they don't have them, we'll get on them. There's always more we can do, though. And if you, if you de-incentivize your state's attractability to illegal aliens, you'll see lower crime rates. You'll see your money go further. You'll see um, you'll just you'll see a better educational system. You'll see a better um, hospital system. I mean, even down to just lower wait times. I mean, it's absolutely insane what Chicago and San Fran and New York City are doing to their own citizens. Um, they're 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 helping. They're aiding and abetting these NGOs. They're creating sanctuary city policies. They're helping these illegal aliens all at the expense of their own citizens, and it's it's a crying shame. Um, I was, uh, I've got a piece coming out soon, and I talk about um, how um, crime, crime in New York City alone, because of soft on crime policies and, and Soros-backed prosecutors, all coupled with sanctuary city policies, you know, they've seen crime go up by 22.4%, and I don't think that's a coincidence at all. No, it's not. It's not. And also on the Heritage Foundation, if they, people click on the immigration uh, topic, you have up there 20 ways states can prevent illegal immigration. And number one is e-verify. A very simple e-verify. 
Uh, before you, if someone is hired, the business should do an E-Verify. Uh, the, the, for licensing, uh, if, 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 if you have even the, the motor voter registration, hello, if you're here illegally, if you're not a resident a citizen, you cannot do a motor voter. But this, a lot of states are allowing this to slip through. Uh, allowing citizens to sue colleges or any other uh, government uh, uh, facility if they are catering to illegal aliens on your tax dollar. And you're not getting the services you need because it's being given to an illegal alien. Uh, we have to put the power back in the people's hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. There's a lot that states can do. You know, that list on, on our website is only 20 things, but I could think about 50 right now. I mean, I could go on and on about it. <laughs> but, yeah, the, 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 the American people have power of the purse. They have power of control. You see it with the woke agenda that they're fighting. You can, you can do the same thing when it comes to immigration, uh, specifically illegal immigration. And um, the moment that the, the American people wake up, I know a lot of them are, but still a lot of them are snoozing. And they just believe what the Biden administration is touting on the mainstream media. They believe the optic-driven um, shell game that they're pushing, their narrative that they're pushing. They believe it. If they just step back for a second and they, and they view it just differently for just a moment, they'll realize they have a lot more power than, than collectively than the government ever will. And the states certainly do as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And people can find you up on heritage.org, and you join us every week to talk about illegal immigration, or even if it comes to a point where we get it down to manageable, we might start talking about legal immigration once again. (laughs) That would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would. That'd be a joy. That's definitely been backburnered right now. Yeah, it is. It is, Hannah. Well, I want to thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having you back next week. And uh, I hope you enjoy your Father Day's weekend, and uh, I hope your family has a lot of fun with it. God bless. All righty. Thank you. All right. You're welcome. Uh, Hannah Davis, check her out at heritage.org and at the Daily Signal, which you can connect you up on heritage.org. That's what we got for today here, Curtis. Uh, And we're going to be back here next week. We've got Frank Gaffney will be joining us. Mark Tapscott will be joining us. Hannah will be coming back. And I'm looking at Trevor Loudon. I sent a message out to him last night, and hopefully by the time I get off the air, uh, I will have a message back for him. I haven't talked to Trevor in quite a while. I have to say I've been a little remiss. So if I don't hear back from him, I'll just pick up the phone and give him another call and get his butt in gear and get him back on here. Yeah. But that's what we got. And not today. only that, my friend Barbara, she she wants to come on um, next Friday too. She didn't make it today because of a dental appointment. Um, there may be just one slot left. Let me double check. Uh, it should be the first one, uh, but I'll double check with that. Put it aside for her. I won't book anyone else until I hear back from Trevor, and that way we can book Barbara in if she's available. No more dental appointments. Okay. All right. I told her that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we got for today. I want to thank everyone that joined us over here up on Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for the comments. I know, Sasquatch, I didn't get to your one comment. Beat me up later on. I apologize. <laughs> but um, those that joined us on Facebook and YouTube and on my homepage, Southern Sense, put it a dash in the middle. And we're hoping to very soon, I keep on saying this now for the last year and a half, bring this up another level especially after the debacle we went through at the start of the show with Blog Talk Radio. Uh, But I'll leave you with my friend, Gary Pecarella, and Save America. 
So have a happy Father's Day out there. And I say good night and God bless.